Queen of consumer care. Consumer care is actually uh, quite an important part of the brand, as we saw yesterday. So um, here you, this is your communications hub with Philips. Uh, you can ask questions, you can complain, you can leave reviews, etc. Um, this, even though it seems very down to earth, actually, um, it's one of the most, it's one of the yeah, most interesting. Uh, where we're starting to move into chatbots, and, uh, and the, the big thing in chatbots these days is, of course, artificial intelligence. Right? How can you pretend you're a human? Um, so then, of course, we have the uh, the in-app purchase or the e-commerce component. Right, so we have our own Philips shop. Um, even though, like the majority of Philips products are sold through our retailers and our retail partners, Amazon, for instance, um, for certain um, elements, specifically the accessories, so the toothbrush head from a toothbrush, you really want to sell them in your own shop. Um, mostly because of um, you can, yeah, the margins uh, can be quite high. We have product registration. Mm -hmm. Product registration with connected products is actually quite easy, as you can imagine. Right? You basically turn it on, and then it connects to the cloud infrastructure, and boom, your product is registered. And if you combine it with user registration, uh, yeah, you are able to already see a lot. I'll come back on that later on the data analytics. And, um, and this is the most important part for us designers. Um, we have a mobile toolkit, mobile UI toolkit. Now, the UI toolkit is probably what you think of when you think of, like, okay, this, uh, this, is, this is where the components start to make sense. This is where the approach starts to make sense. And, um, like I said, Philips has guidelines, digital guidelines. And those guidelines, they prescribe what the shape of a button needs to be, or uh, how a background needs to look, where you put the logo, etc., right? So usually those guidelines, there are PDF documents somewhere. The first thing you do, and sometimes you forget it, is send it to an agency and say, look, this is the guidelines. And that always goes wrong, uh, because you have to, uh, they, don't, they don't have to write an email back, like, oh, this is just, uh, just PDF, where are the PSDs, right? <laughs> I want those buttons, I don't want the, uh, the documentation. And then nobody can find these, these, etc., etc. So we went like, okay, how about if instead of guidelines uh, and writing them down, we build them, right? So that's what we did. We um, and we built an SDK for both iOS and Android, and it has all the interface elements um, that you can use in the app. Yeah, again, and this is the frame. And now the frame analogy starts to kind of fall apart because. Um, this is an essential part of the painting, right? But it's the reusable parts of the interface, right? So this has two major advantages. First thing, this is great for me, is everything is automatically on ground, right? We don't have to go again and check that work anymore. Is that, is that corner radius? Is that, I think it's two pixels too, too much, like, writing back. No, everything is on ground automatically, and the development costs are reduced enormously, as you can imagine. Um, because uh, to build a hamburger menu, which is not part of iOS, so you have to build a custom, it's actually quite a lot of effort. Um, so you don't want to, and, and of course the interactions are now completely the same, so it's really useful for people who 
use multiple field terms, right? Because they start recognizing fields, they start recognizing the breadth. And one of the coolest things about the, uh, the component approach is that it, it reshifts focus. So instead of having to allocate all this budget to build something that everybody has already built three, four, five, twenty times over, you can now allocate those budgets if you want to build something really cool. Right? Because it's already been built. So you know, if we have 15,000 uh, euros budget for a project, um, then we uh, then we can dedicate that for it to a VR component, right? Instead of having to build a hamburger manually. So, major advantage of component approach. So the mobile UI toolkit. One of the most interesting elements of it is uh, what we call theming. And theming um, is um, um, yeah, skinning. I'll show you. But what you might have noticed is that all the previous examples were shown in white and blue. That's how my teams design them, but that's not how they end up. Right? Think of all those apps. So theming allows us to play around with the colors. Right? So you can change what I think of as the front layer of colors. You can put another layer in the back end, and you start to slowly starts to get a more uh, or a different emotional impact. And for instance, this, this, this type of interface would be very good for medical applications. And for people who use an application every day, you don't want to like, completely blow them away with interesting images and backgrounds. You just want to give them something very functional and so they immediately see what they have to do. And here becomes a little bit more emotional uh, impact already. And once you start playing with that background, you can give it more character, right? And it becomes totally different thing again. So here you get um, still the same set, but now we start putting photo photography in the background, and you can immediately see, like, hmm, this is for a cooking app, right? This is like, I'm going to make nice stuff with this. So that's why theming is such an important uh, element of, uh, of our set. Now, so much for what it is, now how we do it, the design standards that we have to develop. If, if you've worked in apps, then this is probably, uh, here's somebody laugh already, uh, this is your world, right? It's, it's the 90s all over again, and it's, uh, but this, not, this time it's not two browsers, but it's like, uh, God. And they all work different every time I was I was 10 just updated and I broke everything again <laughs> so total device hell um, so we went okay you know how can we make sure that we don't drive ourselves crazy by um, yeah having to literally design for all those different uh, screen densities right the screen sizes. And we, we applied a principle which is funnily enough not very accepted in the app world but is, is getting uh, uh, more common now or at least we're forcing it to become more common so it's responsive design. Right? In the web it's completely uh, yeah, yeah, everybody does it by now uh, I guess. Right? And in the app it's, it's very different and one of the reasons is uh, like iOS has a very different 
system uh, to because they only have the phones and the iPads and an Android. But uh, um, so it's a little bit of a puzzle to to, to uh, get to this principle. But once you get it, then um, then then it becomes quite powerful, and it automatically also starts uh, taking care of situations such as um, uh, multitasking, which is being rolled out now with Android 7 and uh, iOS 10. Or was it already a 9? I don't know. Um, so we, we create a grid system. Um, uh, once you're in, uh, in responsive design, usually what is important is not so much the content itself, but more the margins. So um, here you see the bars uh, So instead of to define these as uh, fixed values, uh, pixel values, we start to define them as variables, right? So you can, uh, if it's an iPhone or if it's a phone, just use this value, value E, it says. If it's more on a tablet, use a different value. And we just have a different table of values and we can apply it all over. Which is good for us, designers, because we don't have to create all the screens uh, 20 times. And it's also good for developers. Because you know they they like to think in variables and they like to program them because it's uh, less effort. Um, so yeah, once you're doing that anyway, then um, you, you can start creating generic layouts, right? And you get into a more template-based design, which is again it's, it's totally common. It's like this is uh, this is from the print age, right? Who said we are the tools that we make, or the tools that, that make us? Oh. But um, what we found out, because we're in uh, the digital innovation and the connected products uh, um, scene, like it's a really exciting scene, and everybody all the time likes to exper experiment and do new cool stuff. So all those standards that everybody was used to and uh, worked hard to get, they all went through the door or in the bin. Right, because we're innovating. So a large part of this effort is to create those standards again and start rolling them out because they were standards for a reason. Now we also created design tools. Um, sorry, this is for um, Peter. This is still for Xure. But um, we also need to enable our, 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 um, our designers to, uh, to be able to make all these 40 apps. Right, so we start. Uh, we create an Xure library, which again has that uh, has that has all those components from our brand guidelines uh, preset. So our interaction designers can very quickly sort of click an interface together. Um, not concentrate on the frame anymore, but concentrate where their concentration is really needed on the painting. Right, and. Eventually, of course, this happens in a UX design, like rolls out into a UX design, which is um, actually this is one of my least favorite parts of um, of uh, the app design methodology that uh, that's uh, common right now, because um, not because of the UX design, because I'm a UX designer, I love UX design. No, it's because like we all had these these uh, the screen flows, right? Neat little diagrams with page goes here, uh, decision this way, this way, this way. But because the apps used to be so small screens, right? Everybody everybody was designing for iPhone 4s. So the new type of page flow became the de facto standard to uh, to do the screens in the page flow. 
which is uh, in some cases completely useless. So we tried to uh, we tried to take them out, and, and there was an uproar. <laughs> People hated it. Developers were like, well, what are you doing? I need the screens. Okay, we'll put them back. Okay, so and now talking about developers. So this is where the design process becomes important. Um, I work with India a lot, right? And here you see my uh, India uh, colleagues. Um, Indian colleagues. Um, so it says Philips Innovation Campus there. The Philips Innovation Campus is in Bangalore. Uh, a lot of companies are in Bangalore when they're in India. Think of it as uh, San Francisco, but then in India or the Valley. Um, so this is actually our biggest Philips office in the world, and it's also the only office that that spans the whole range of Philips products. So medical. Uh, consumer, uh, research, like everything is there. So it's a really exciting place. Um, um, are, are there people here who uh, work with Indians? Yeah, a few, not too many. Um, next time you hear somebody say, like, oh, it's so terrible to work with Indians. Like, you know, you have to sp like, tell them everything exactly how it's done. And, uh, so you're going to complain, don't believe a word of it. Man, it's actually a very cool atmosphere. It's a different culture, of course. Um, but uh, the Agile process, and I assume that everybody here knows about Agile, was basically made for India. Hmm. When I go to India, um, every time I go back, like uh, come back in Europe, and I think, like, oh my God, this, this country is not supposed to work, but it works. Right? It's completely self-organizing. It's 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 chaos, but yeah, they still manage to have a great country. So, um, but okay, we still need a little bit of process. And I already mentioned agile, and we use agile, but we use this agile on steroids um, version, which is um, skilled agile framework. Hence, who knows this? Yeah, a couple of people here. Right? Not too many. Now, once you get into corporate, you get into um, into uh, the, the skilled agile framework, safe as it's very misleadingly called. <laughs> and um, it has. Uh, so I'll start with the really good thing. The really good thing is that everybody knows what a backlog is, right? You take things from the top of the backlog and you develop them, and that basically creates your priorities. Now, in safe. You have the teams below here. This, 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 this is us, right? Designers and developers in multifunctional teams, and we all have our backlogs. Now, what somebody—I forgot his name because there's one guy, one guru that thought this up—and um, he figured, like, hey, these backlogs—they're a really good idea, actually. Why don't we apply them to? the whole organization structure of a big corporation, right? So that's what he did. He created first the next level up, right? So this is uh, what you'd call the business level. And they have backlogs as well. It's the value stream. So instead of thinking of backlog items like, okay, I'm, I need to, like, as, as a user, I need to be able to register with my mobile phone because in China nobody uses email addresses, right? Okay, user story in the in the teams. 
in the in the more business uh, user stories, yeah, it's much more high level. You go like um, as a uh, customer, right? uh, I need to be able to uh, to help my kids brush their teeth, right? So very high level back backlog item. And these backlog items, just like for us, right? They go whatever is at the top gets injected into the agile trains. Well, they're called agile release trains. Um, and this is how we create priorities. Theoretically, it also goes one level up, right? So if you're a really uh, agile company, you can do this on board level, right? Um, as a as a like business, I want to penetrate, you know, the Brazilian market or whatever. <laughs> so it's their user stories. Um, so, but that doesn't work for us yet. But it's pretty good that you have this value stream already, right? Because it drives the focus. Now, what's I'm not sure if it's if it's a good thing or a bad thing yet. But um, um, this is what a release train is. Right, and that's what makes this process sometimes a little bit um, stressful, let's say. Because an agile release train is literally what it sounds like. It's a train and it rolls on and it doesn't stop moving. Right? So um, we don't do project teams anymore. Well, we do do project teams, but we don't put them on a project. They don't generate their own budget. We just say at the start of the year, like, here's a big bucket of money. Right? Think up something nice, right? And then we throw it all in the train, and and it doesn't like okay, it's it's still fairly flat, uh, um, flexible, right? and of course it's a little bit less. I'm, I'm I'm making it sound a little bit more extreme now, but of course people look at budgets and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, you bring the work to the teams. Right, so you don't think anymore like, okay, the project is finished now, we're going to disband the team and, and we're going to move on, maybe create a new team. No, the team is there and it's your responsibility to fill them up with work. And that's why it can be quite stressful because, uh, of course, there's always more work as long as there's budget, right? Okay. Five more minutes. Design for healthcare. Now, healthcare comes with its own little quirks, and you can all remember or probably imagine why. Uh, and one of the reasons is that you, if you make a usability a mistake in healthcare, um, it can have very serious consequences, right? People can die in the worst uh, case scenario. And uh, I've shown an example here, not from Philips, but from uh, GE um, in, uh, in the States, and they had a class, class action suit because uh, they do uh, CT scanners, just like Philips, right? And a CT scanner is basically, for people that don't know, it's an X-ray scanner, but it doesn't take one picture of your chest, for instance, but it's on this rotating donut, and it's constantly on, so it's very high dose. So the dose in intensity, like how, how, how um, bright is that beam that gets aimed at you, is very important. And if it's too high, you start... Well, it looks like they're losing hair, but it, it's not. Like their hair, their hair cells got fried, they're dead, right? And that's why they don't have hair anymore. And you can only imagine what happened under the skull, right? So, a 
the reason, here, the, here you see the interface. The reason that happened is because this little value here was too high. Right? So I, I outlined uh, the yellow box, of course. Um, if that yellow box is gone, right, you, you can imagine why such a mistake was made. So usability testing and actually user research in general in healthcare is not um, is not the item that um, you know is the first one to disappear off the pitch list, right? <laughs> you go like, yeah, so like when you picked us as an agency, we're going to do all the user research, we're going to user centered design, and we do usability testing afterwards. Uh, it's going to cost you a hundred thousand euros. Okay, fifteen thousand euros, and we scratch all the research in healthcare. You have to do user research by law, which is great. Um, actually, the reason I'm here is because uh, I, uh, one of our people researchers uh, referred me. She has the best job in the world. She, she basically goes like everywhere, traveling, Africa, India, f f South America, whatever. <laughs> so um, sometimes I do it as well. Uh, here is uh, where I went to a couple of hospitals for radiologists. Uh, radiologists are the prime consumers of, uh, of the images uh, that our machines create. So here you see somebody talking to, uh, to what looks like um, a pointer or a clicker, but it's actually voice, voice recognition software. So she diagnoses um, the lung pictures in this case. It's really cool to see because it works quite well. Um, and, all the, and the computer just types it in. Um, here you see uh, not a radiologist, but a uh, 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 technical staff, so to say. So basically, if you go into a hospital, I hope you never will, but if you do and you go into an MRI machine, you will not meet the actual radiologist. You will meet the people that set it up and that help the radiologist, the technical staff. So administering... Um, like contrast fluids and pushing people into the uh, to the machine, make sure that there's no earrings because an MRI is a big uh, magnet, so you can imagine what happens to your earrings. Um, so anyway, you interview them, you shadow them, you do diary studies, whatever, and then you structure them all. I used to like uh, uh, I, I like to use um, wool, right? Just wool for knitting. Okay. Um, because you can you can take it off the wall again and stick it somewhere else, and eventually you you, yeah, you, you condense 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 condense, and you get something that's called a task analysis, right? And task analysis is basically a structured flow of all the steps that per people have to go through. Now again, this is not something that we do because it's good user-centered design. Well, also, um, but you have to do this, which is which is one of the cool things about healthcare. Of course, we do a lot of conceptual sketching still. Maybe not a, um, um, a required step, but it's good for, uh, for selling an idea to the business. And prototyping, of course. I don't think anybody works without prototyping anymore, thanks to our fantastic tools that, uh, that we're, we're getting these days. Um, and yeah, why we do that in healthcare so much is because there's international standards. Um, the big one is the FDA standard, um, uh, Food and Drug Administration, I think. 
Uh, and there's a European standard as well, but it's less important because if you, if you comply with this one, this one's fine. Now, where it sort of falls apart is, uh, is like once you, 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 in some cases you literally have to print everything out and they put it in a cupboard. <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, but that's how it works. Once it's in that cupboard or safe, uh, then you can't change anything anymore. Right? Then it has to be like that because you have tested everything. So you can imagine how that works with an agile environment. It doesn't. So that's when things get really expensive if you mess it up. Um, yeah, of course we do the usability testing afterwards. So here you see patient-doctor interface, right? Which we deal with a lot. Um, doctor sees something else than the patient. Uh, we do A-B testing, which uh, recently uh, we got working in apps. Also a little bit difficult, but maybe there's a few people here that can give me some hints and tips. Um, and of course the data analytics, right? which is one of the major boons of connected products. Because like that, that sparkly, that little Furby ball before, for instance, we know that he gets uh, tickled like two million times a month. Right? You can tickle him and he gets like <laughs> So you can measure everything if you want and if you have the um, approval from your users. So why do we all do this? I hope you understand now. This is what we want to do. We want to push out a lot of apps. We want to push out a lot of high-quality apps. And we want to make that as easy and as painless as possible for our, both developers and our designers. Thank you. Yeah, and you feel free to contact Rhino during the day. Uh, also, if you have some tips for uh, A-B testing, right? Yep. Yeah, um, we are going to go through the next speaker in a second, but I uh, am privileged to be able to ask you one question. Uh, it seems like right now um, that every co all the connected products are pretty much connected also to the user by an app. How do you see that going in the future? Do you think it, I mean, that probably works amazing right now where we're all yeah. in the app phase of our... <laughs> yeah, um, do you think that's going to continue like that or do you see it going somewhere else in the future? So f for the moment, yes, right? Um, because the app is still uh, the only interface and I don't think it will go away either. Um, but what I see is that um, it will change a lot. Okay. Right? And this, one of the major struggles that we're currently dealing with is like how do you turn something from a product or something from just because it's cool to do or because you can into something that's useful, right? So if you go to all the fitness uh, uh, Fitbits. Uh, Fitbits in the world, they all give you these dashboards and dashboards and dashboards everywhere, dashboards which are completely useless to anybody. I mean, okay, it's interesting, and uh, they're really cool for designers because you can like work on your visual and data visualization skills, but they're completely useless for, uh, for the people that you make them for. So, um, the, yeah, the apps are going to stay, the interfaces are still going to be there, um, but we're going to look at a lot more technologies to give that feedback, and hopefully also different interfaces. And um, also intelligence behind it, right? How do you interpret the data? How can you automate that interpretation? And then how can you feed it back? And that may be through you light, right? We could send in a Morse code. Through a light. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> but, yeah.
Yeah. And, and I'm also hearing you say a little bit more like the the communication trend with the chatbots and yeah. and yeah, yeah. So AI recognition like, uh, and those kind yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. And Amazing. we're going to have more interfaces, but I'm not one of uh, I, I don't believe in like the best interfaces, no interface with products. No, no, no. Still That's okay. You have always have it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much, Andrew. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Andrew. You can fight with Andrew. Fair enough, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Before becoming a product designer at BuzzFeed, our next speaker was a freelancer for 17 years. He studied history and political science, but luckily for us, he's decided to go into digital design, and today he's here to represent BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed is a cross-platform global network for, no, uh, for news and entertainment. It generates 7 billion views each month. One, one might say that BuzzFeed is the king of casual and fun design. They have proved that crazy color, very funny content, and a menu where you can navigate between lull, win, fail, and WTF creates engagement. Our next speaker talks more about this and his passion for digital typography, narrative storytelling, and organizing information in meaningful ways. Please give a big welcome to John Niedermeyer. Thank you. Thank you. There you go. Forward. Can you guys hear me? Hi. That was a very nice introduction. Thank you. <laughs> Makes me sound very old, but that's okay. <laughs> um, first of all, thank you guys for inviting me here. I've um, been so inspired by all the speakers in the program the last uh, day or so, and I'm looking forward to everything today. Um, you'll notice in your program the title of my talk is simply BuzzFeed. Uh, that was sort of a placeholder that I never quite filled in, but I am here to talk about BuzzFeed and to talk about how media consumption is shifting and how we as designers and creators can adopt, adapt to these realities and help find and grow new audiences. So first, let's start off with a question. Show of hands, how many of you guys check out the homepage of a news site on a daily basis? Wow. Uh, how many of you use the news app? on your smartphone every day. It's pretty good. Um, so if you're a publisher, you care a lot about those people that raise their hands, and I'm one of those people too, but um, they're your most loyal customers. They're the ones that turn to you when news is breaking. They look to you for authority, and they really go out of their way to seek you out. Um, but that committed audience is getting smaller. It's getting older. And when you couple it with the economics of online advertising, which is very diminishing returns, um, it's harder and harder to make money off them. These were the good old days. Publishers put a paper out every day, and everybody read the same thing in the same way at the same time. Um, so when the Internet rolled around, these traditional print outlets saw the web as just another medium for the same content in the same format. So there were many 1,000-word stories, no matter what. Uh, you publish once a day, and uh, on the web, maybe you put a medium-sized photo at the top for a little visual pop. Um, but this was a strategy that didn't fully appreciate the advantages of digital in the web um, and later apps, what they offer. So what are the digital advantages? Um, first, things on the Internet can be updated more than once a day, which is crazy. Um, 
in the early days working for publishers, it was sometimes an argument you had to make. Um, but it makes it possible to cover breaking news event as they unfold and, and get people information quickly. Um, you can just pull out your phone and, and follow along with a live event. Um, the second advantage, it's free for users. That's great. Um, the cost of publishing on the internet is basically free. There are no gatekeepers anymore. Um, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s, uh, we had three or four TV stations. We had a local paper. Maybe there were a handful of national newspapers and magazines, and that was it. Um, but since then, there's been an explosion of sources online, some quality, some not. Um, but these legacy news brands no longer have a monopoly. Digital is also global. You can reach millions of people around the world, which is something, you know, my local paper growing up in Buffalo, New York, could never hope to do. And it's also social, obviously very important to BuzzFeed. It's personal. I can find things that my friends like, have a conversation with them, with the publisher not even part of that conversation. Um, so publishers and platforms that can embrace and enable that relationship between your friends and family are going to attract more and more people. But there are also challenges. Um, unless you're a news geek like me, you don't have, like, the New York Times homepage open in a tab on your desktop. Um, you're not compulsively refreshing throughout the day to see how they're, like, things are changing and, and, and what's new. You've got a life, and you've also got a phone in your pocket that makes it uh, a lot easier to discover and consume stuff. Um, so as a publisher, you no longer own that one-to-one -one relationship that we did in the days of, of newspapers. Um, and then you've got these platforms like Facebook and Snapchat that uh, make it more convenient and engaging um, than any one individual publisher can do on their own. So, I mean, like, like you, I'm more likely to tap on something my friends post on one of these social platforms and more likely to engage with it, like it, share it, you know, have a conversation around it than just going to the New York Times or going to the Guardian. Um, this is also a challenge. It's free for publishers. That's a challenge um, compared to print rates. Online advertising is worth only a fraction of what it was in long ago. So if publishers rely on ads to keep the lights on, they have to aggressively grow that audience. They've got to get bigger. And that means reaching younger, more global, and diverse demographic. Um, the other option, which we tried at the New York Times, is a sub subscription model. Um, and what happens there is uh, your most loyal users are willing to pay. Um, and while that does generate real money and it helps retain those hardcore users, it doesn't really scale. Um, because the abundance of free news out there, for most people, free is good enough. It's also concise. A newspaper like the Times, where I worked for almost nine years, uh, had more than 150 years practice writing, editing, presenting the news in very similar format. Um, and they take this quite seriously. They see it as sort of a first draft of history. Um, so there's a very formal tone. And again, there's a lot of these like thousand word articles, whether or not that's actually like the best vehicle for, for telling a story. Um, so again, as they started publishing pieces online, basically the thinking was, well, what works in print will work online. We'll just do it first for print, and then the kids will put it up on the internet. Um, sounds great, right? Uh, but no, if I'm on my phone, why would I want to wade through all of that and, uh, just to get a piece of information that I'm looking for? So what you started to see maybe 15 years ago, 10 years ago, at least in the States, was uh, digital-only blogs popped up, like Huffington Post, Gawker, 
And they would just read the long articles and then summarize them in a very conversational tone, just tell you what you need to know um, and put it out there. And you could pull out your phone, read, understand, and then move on. So that was a challenge. Um, it's also personal. Uh, again, a publisher is not going to have that bond with readers that they already have with their friends and family. Um, so as a result, I'm, again, I'm more likely to seek out and engage with stories that connect with my identity um, or stories that my friends and family share. Um, so in the print age, everybody got the same package in the same form. Um, it wasn't tailored to me as this particular identity or you as that particular identity. Um, so again, I think publishers need to find a way to meaningfully tap into those relationships um, and encourage it. Still with me? <laughs> uh, I know this is a design conference, and you're probably expecting uh, not to have media criticism class here, but um, I, I do believe that design is not some artistic endeavor. I don't really have an artistic bone in my body. Um, you know, as designers, we have to apply our creativity and our smarts to problems and uh, provide solutions. So for me, understanding the challenges and opportunities up front is very important when I try anything. Um, so I'm going to walk you through some projects that uh, to very, various degrees of success or failure, try to embrace uh, this new paradigm. Um, and I should say up front, it's going to be very U.S.-centric because I'm American, but uh, there's no reason not to think that the same forces at work that I've seen throughout my career aren't, aren't in play all over the world. Uh, first, who am I? <laughs> um, it was a lovely introduction, but um, I would just say I'm a designer. I live, I work in New York, Brooklyn, I love it. Um, been there almost, well, a little over nine years. Once I get to 10, that means I'll be a real New Yorker. That's, that's how they measure you. Um, and again, most of that time was spent working for the New York Times in a variety of roles. I was both on the, both on the product side, working on section redesigns and apps and that kind of thing. And then the last four or so years, I was down in the newsroom um, working on daily news cycle stuff. Um, so I just want to like go back in time really quickly and rush through some of the earlier like experiments that uh, we, we were trying to think through and try to play some of these things to sh sort of start to shift the, uh, the the culture of the place from traditional print mindset to digital. Um, and the first one is just this cute little app. First project, it's probably five or six years ago. It's an iOS app called The Scoop. Very journalistic branding there. Um, but it was a going out guide to New York, had restaurant recommendations, event listings, other kinds of activities, things to do. Um, and you could get a lot of that content every day in the paper if you read it every day and you wanted to carry around, you know, all these print papers in your bag when you needed to find a place to go, you could just pull out a, yeah, that's not going to work. So what we wanted to do was um, give you something in your pocket that would help you find things to do and um, really try and deconstruct those typical newspaper reviews and articles. Um, and sort of rearrange the parts into something more compelling uh, for your phone. So we, we took the same critics and reporters, and we sort of tasked them with curating lists, uh, write short blurbs, you know, like kind of Twitter length, you can see, like blurbs that just kind of give you a sense of the place. Um, we could include servicey things like maps, directions, phone numbers, all that kind of good stuff that you might need. Um, and it showcased beautiful photography. The Times takes this beautiful photography and only a small bit of it finds, it way, finds its way online or in print. So we had access to a lot of that. 
And, you know, you could tap and swipe in, and it sort of took advantage of all the bells and whistles that uh, native plat platforms offered. Um, and, of course, we did link to the review. It's there. You can go and read it, and it's, you know, a thousand words or whatever. But it wasn't sort of, like, core to consuming and using the app. It was just sort of like an extra thing. Um, we also added social integration with Facebook Open Graph, because that's what you did in 2011. Everybody rushed to get, you know... OG tags into their apps and pages. Um, but we thought of it as a way to really try and enable, again, that friend-to-friend -friend social uh, connection. Um, so maybe you're on Facebook and you see your friend likes ABC Kitchen and you'd start up a conversation and maybe go, go to dinner. That was the thinking. It was a little naive, but um, that was our hope. Uh, so this was very early days, uh, but I want to talk a little bit about the lessons we learned from this, what I learned. Um, first, I thought it was a great experiment for the times uh, to try to embrace some of these opportunities of digital uh, distribution and these amazing devices that are in our pockets. Um, the format was tailored to the device, uh, which was new. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a newspaper article just pasted online or, or whatever. Um, and it was written very concisely, and the presentation was intuitive. I, I really love this app. I used it a lot. Um, but <laughs> there are other lessons, and one is that it didn't really scale, and there's many reasons for that. First of all, it wasn't comprehensive. Um, it was, by design, a curated list of a small amount of like great things you should want to do. Um, but if you're competing with apps like Foursquare, which I love, uh, Yelp, TripAdvisor, all those kinds of things that you find through search and Google, like, you know, if you don't have a comprehensive thing, then that's like another barrier of entry for people to to want to like seek you out. The other thing is, it wasn't live. We only updated the app with new lists or updates to those lists every couple of months. Um, you know, we would like try to run down these critics and reporters and be like, you got to update the scoop and. Um, it just wasn't core to like their daily job. They had to put out polished reviews and all that. Um, and it wasn't central to our daily work. Like This was sort of a side project we were playing around with. Um, so I think a lot of people found it useful, and we got lots of great feedback and email and love, but like the numbers just really weren't there because we weren't giving them reasons to come back. And the other thing is, uh, distribution of it was still centralized. Uh, you had to be a very, again, a very committed person to first come to the New York Times, see the ad, or understand that, hey, oh, there's an app I can get, download the app, and it was iOS only. Um, and then you had to remember when you're walking around to launch it. So that's like a lot of uh, friction in order to, to engage with it. So, you know, we tried adding social layers. We tried to build out a web view that you could open on Android phones or on your desktop. Um, but the, the barrier to entry was still too high. Um, again, if you Google, give me the best NYC restaurants, you'll get a nice result that's probably good enough. It's also labor intensive. It's kind of expensive. Um, we, were, we were a small team. It's one designer, one product lead, an editorial lead who tried to wrangle people to write content, um, and a few developers, but it was still a big investment. Um, and again, although I think it was a good experiment, at least internally, at trying to uh, craft something that could potentially reach bigger audiences, um, ultimately because it was New York City and for all these other reasons, it was just too narrow. It's good to learn. Um, 
few years later, they would sort of like double down and expand on this experiment. Uh, my colleagues worked on this great app, NYT Now, which is now no longer with us. <laughs> but uh, instead of listings, the goal here was to really tackle the day's best news, um, but in a much less formal, much more open way. Um, it was very nicely tailored to your phone. It wasn't 100 articles a day. It was like 10, 15. Um, and it was very live. And they even, rather than waiting around for the New York Times to like rewrite some story, if Reuters or, or some other news agency had a great piece, they just linked off to it. And that was like revolutionary to have that sort of in the flow of things. Um, and it was free. Uh, you still had to know to download it. You still had to bring it out. So there were a lot of challenges there. But it was a, another huge step forward. Um, yeah, so they shut down that app recently. But I think... They took a lot of those lessons, and they are starting to fold it into the core New York Times app that has, you know, the 100 articles a day or whatever. Um, and I think as a result, that app is now far more engaging and compelling. Um, it's a great experience because of these experiments. So still back in the time machine. Um, this is 2009. Uh, it was a section redesign we did for the opinion section, op-ed section of the New York Times online. Um, I'm proud that this was the first time we bought, brought the, uh, the branded web fonts uh, to nytimes.com with the help of Typekit. It was very exciting. Um, but these template layouts sought to better showcase some of the amazing illustration and art direction that was in print every day and just was not getting used very well online. Um, and just to bring a more refined look to the section homepage. Um, but it's just kind of a coat of paint. Like we added some little UI devices that made it harder, or sorry, harder, easier <laughs> to find like your, you know, more of your favorite columnists or whatever. But like ultimately it's not reaching a new audience. Like people still have to go here. They have to, it has to be part of their daily habit. Like, you know, this isn't going to get millennials excited, right? Um, we were still thinking of this kind of thing as a destination page, like, oh, they're going to want to come here every day and check check back as we update it. But um, you start to look at analytics, and obviously pretty quickly we realized most people come in to, like, article pages, and we didn't even touch these in the redesign. Um, so they'd end up here, or whatever the mobile web version was. Um, so may maybe they come in from Twitter or Facebook, they see this, they maybe they read, maybe they don't, and they hit their back button and they're gone. Um, so we're starting to realize that like this is probably the layer that needed some more attention and where we could really elevate what we did. I mean, that looks really boring. You can read it. It's great. But like, um, there's just so much more potential there. So this is another early experiment. Um, sorry, it's a little blurry. I had to pull it out of the vault. Um, uh, this is this was a project for a magazine story, very long uh, package of articles about food, Michael Pollan, Mark Bittman, other people writing really interesting things. And in the magazine especially, there's always these beautiful images, and, you know, they get all the cool fonts, and they can do all these amazing layouts, and then, like, we put it on the web, and there's Georgia and Ariel. And um, so we, we wanted to get in on this action and try to try to elevate this article level. Um, but it really was just visual design, flair, visuals. Um, I got a little fancy with the, the grid there and offsetting columns and stuff. Um, so it brought a lot of those cues from the magazine, um, but it wasn't very well optimized for performance, which I can tell you why. The way we did this, because the normal article template is just spit out of the CMS and the normal Georgia, we thought it would be a great idea to take some JavaScript and when the page loads, just dump that and then re- <laughs> construct the page. So yeah, it wasn't very optimized for, for performance or your phone, but 
hey, it was hacky, and it, it, got, it, it got out the door, and, and I think we learned a lot from this. We got a lot of frantic calls from the technology leadership, though, because when they realized what the hell we were doing, they were like, you can't do that. And I'm like, I did. Um, <laughs> but it really, it really proved that we could, we could experiment with format at a story level, however minor here. Like, yes, it's still the same text. We didn't do anything to really shape that, but um, we could get, get in the mix there a little bit. Um, and we did a lot of this. Uh, we could take important stories like this one about a homeless family in Brooklyn and elevate them through design. This was just a little prototype I, I made in like Keynote or something and worked with a developer on. Um, there's this lovely 30,000 word story about a deadly avalanche, um, which we were able to do some really lovely videos. Uh, my colleague Jackie Mint spent a lot of time playing around with this. Um, and our, our friends in the graphics department got like real weird and crazy 3D with, uh, trying to really take you there and show you like, you know, where these these mountain passes were and where the avalanche happened. At least here you're adding something that you can't get in print. Like sure you can have a static version of that um, in print, but like this really at least gave you something more than just a uh, visual design. But imagine reading thirty thousand words on your phone, right? Like you lose your internet connection and it refreshes and you're like, where did I where did I leave off? So you know, it was clear I think at that point that coming in at the end of the process when you have a print article that looks lovely and they're like, here you go, digital kids, like make it cool. Um, we needed to get involved earlier in the conception process and get really dirty with the editors and, and really try to experiment um, before it's like a baked thing. Um, so this isn't like a hugely visual, amazing thing here, um, this, this article, but um, let me, just some background. You guys know what the Affordable Care Act is in the United States? It's, uh, we don't have universal available health care, so most people get their care from employers and there's some patchwork programs for the poor. It's like been a big political issue back and forth for, for the parties in the states for 60, 70, 80 years. Um, but one thing Obama proposed early in his presidency was to try to pass something that could get at uh, making it easier for people to, to get health care. So that went into effect, I don't know, 2013, something like that. And a year later, we wanted to do sort of a roundup, like how is it going? You know, you'd see things in social media or on like cable news that would say, oh, it's a big failure, it's not working. Like, this is liberal Democrats, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then you'd have other people that were like, Obama can do no wrong. And like, so really what we wanted to do was... I mean, originally it was conceived as like, I don't know, eight or ten print articles sort of looking at the facts and trying to explain whether or not it was working. Um, but if, again, if we just followed that old playbook, posting several 1,000-word articles on the web and an app, it'd be very hard for readers to follow along from one, you know, maybe they would go to one or two and then they would just bail. Um, so it's really not the same as, as reading a newspaper. Um, so what we tried to do instead was bundle the whole project in one concise package and, you know, for the first time really focused entirely on the mobile interface. Didn't worry about desktop at all. Um, so you see a very direct headline. I wish the headline said, is Obamacare working? But we had a long argument with the copy desk about standards and how that's not what the Times calls it. Um, but that would have been a better SEO or, you know, people would have recognized that better. But um, you get a headline with a great prompt, a little short introduction, and then the frame of this thing is asking questions. Um, even before tapping in, you even get an answer. So uh, has the percentage of uninsured people been reduced? 
this is a question people had. And right there, before you even tap in, before you read any more, it says, yeah. It has, the uninsured has fallen, the number of uninsured has fallen significantly. Um, again, not the most fun interface, but it was very casual by time standards. Um, so this is it. It doesn't look like an article. It's just a mobile web page. Um, concise bullet points. Tap in. And we've even got helpful little graphs. Uh, and it's just very concise bullets. And if you want to go into the full article that did appear in print, it's there. It's many layers down. I doubt many people got down there. But again, it wasn't like critical to understanding the piece and um, getting what you needed to get out of it, which was answers. So you could throw this on Twitter or Facebook, come in, poke around, um, very Ajaxy, refreshy. There's not lots of URLs. There's just one URL. Um, and I think it worked really well. And again, desktop, same thing. We didn't even worry about it. We didn't try to do some fancy thing for desktop. We're like, you know what? This is our frame. We're mobile first. We're going to do it. So this is what you saw on the desktop. So I'm talking a lot about the times. I know this is supposed to be about BuzzFeed. <laughs> love the times. Love BuzzFeed. Um, and they did, obviously, they, they continue to do an amazing job every day with uh, visually driven uh, journalism, mobile experiences. Um, they've come a long way. I had felt like I helped on the early days like get get things moving there but they are they are running running away with it now um, again returning to our lessons frame what did we learn uh, I learned anyway as a, as a visual designer and lover of, of these things um, you know nobody loves bespoke typography and beautiful imagery more than me but once we applied our skills earlier into a story conception we started to really unlock the promise of uh, the, the uh, digital potential. And this is something that I always was trying to stress to people. Um, it took a lot of persuading to convince editors to approach things differently. Um, but the simple framing of asking questions and answering them turned out to be a really great constraint. Um, it enabled them to write very directly in clear language, more of a conversational tone, not so formal. And it felt more personal. It felt more relatable. Um, and again, it was a lot more easy to consume on your phone and through social media. <clears throat> so I again, I love my years at the Times, especially the last few in the newsroom. Um, but there was something very interesting to me about a company like BuzzFeed. Not total opposite. I mean, it still has quality news and um, that kind of thing. But it is very different culture. It was digital only. There was no old way of doing things. Um, and they seemed to be wholeheartedly embracing new platforms, new formats, and doing fun stuff alongside serious news. So about a year and a half ago, I joined up. And I manage a small team of product designers, a subset of these guys. This is the whole design team. Um, and I was struck by how liberating it felt, like just walking around the building. The culture is much younger. It's much more diverse. There's such an emphasis on that, even in the tech org, to you know, reach out to all communities and, and bring people in. And it's just a lot of fun. Um, unlike the times at times, at times, where it felt like we had to really obsess about the one right thing and get it out, um, and not make any mistakes because we'll be attacked or, you know, we had this, like, weight of history or whatever on us. At BuzzFeed, experimentation is at the heart of everything we do. Um, so as a creator, you can make 
10 posts and we'll put them out there. And if one goes viral, that's great. And what we want to do, in addition to experimenting, is learn from that. So study that, why did it work, understand it, and then figure out a way to like repeat that frame. <laughs> so we've produced a lot of these fun listicles. Uh, and videos. A lot videos are becoming increasingly important. Um, so yeah, 16 things you only understand if you think blue cheese is fucking gross. I like blue cheese. I'm from Buffalo. We like blue cheese there. Um, but uh, you know, there's cute animal content. <laughs> uh, this is actually social news. So one of our editors found these pigs on Instagram and have sort of like made them made them famous now. Um, and again, like I'm showing these all within the context of the Facebook browser, right? Because that, for most people, that is how they experience BuzzFeed, entirely within the context of their friends and family on Facebook. Maybe they follow BuzzFeed. That's great. Um, but we feel like that's okay. Um, if we go back to what I said earlier, you know, you, don't, you no longer have that, like, push relationship between publisher and, and reader or viewer. Um, you know, you're not going to have a stronger bond than readers have with their friends, right? I keep saying that. Um, so what follows from that is to reach new people that you already don't reach, you need to find a way to engage them in their lives, in the apps they're already using, and focus on what they care about. Um, for instance, on the right here, focusing on stories that uh, connect with people's identity. Um, on the right was a video. I wish I could have captured the video, but it's, uh, you know, a woman talking about being queer in a sorority. Sorority sort of, I don't know if you know, do you have sororities over here? It's like a college club or whatever, usually I think of as kind of conservative. Um, so it's like an interesting frame, right? And like it appeals to an audience. Um, so you can build communities around those frames um, and again, reach new people, which is the goal. Um, we also can tell serious news stories in between the fun. Um, this is obviously near and dear to my heart. On the left, we got a a video about women riding bikes as a form of protest in Iran. In the middle, um, Facebook is censoring Facebook accounts of uh, Palestinian journalists. And on the right, you know, you have really moving images of a, a protest in, in North Carolina. I don't know why these are all protest related, but uh, it was the same day, the same news day on Facebook when I took these screenshots. So they're just in your feed. So come to BuzzFeed for the cat pics and the lulls. And, you know, every once in a while you're going to get important information. And I think that that builds a trust. That helps build the brand. Um, so that's some ways that we think about what we make, how we make. Um, and again, if we truly embrace that idea that to reach more people in the apps and networks that they use every day, it frees us up to take advantage um, of the features of those particular platforms. Um, in case you can create uh, sorry, in fact, you can create content specifically for platforms, say for Instagram. It's like totally different paradigm than a Snapchat or a Facebook. So on Instagram, you know, we have a bunch of amazing illustrators on staff. Like we don't use freelancers. We hire these amazing uh, illustrators, comic book makers, and um, have them make these like very bite-sized things. Like you couldn't put this on an article page and say, go to BuzzFeed. It's just like one, you know bite-sized meme thing um, that makes you laugh and you know it's in between pictures of your kids or um, your friends partying or whatever um, you can do meme funny things like this is a screenshot of a tweet um, so tragic makes me laugh 
Um, and my favorite, because I'm a huge Harry Potter fan still, uh, this one basically tricks you. It uses the UI to trick you into liking the photo. It's like, oh yeah, like double tap and you're going to get something, but like double tap and Instagram will heart and, and make you like it. So you can see 189,000 likes. I think we tricked a lot of people there. Um, but then like, yeah, that might be annoying, but then we're like, oh yeah, comment below. So it's like an invitation to like vent or, or, or talk below and it's like a way to engage people on very bite-sized pieces of, of content. Ah, and then there's Snapchat. How many of you guys use Snapchat on a daily basis? Not on a daily basis? <laughs> uh, are you hooked? You guys like it? You get it? Um, it's an incredible playground for experimentation. I know we're like a brand, and it's, you know, maybe it's not cool that brands are on Snapchat, but um, you can do a lot of things. You can make traditional sort of like list posts. You know, this is like just like any other thing. You can use motion and sound. You can make quizzes on pizza backgrounds. Um, and this takes advantage of snapshots like tap to snap. So like you just wait. I'm a Capricorn, so I'm not going to wait till it gets to the end here. But like you can get to Pisces and hit tap and then snap that out to your, to your network. And it's like just playing around with like the paradigm in, in Snapchat. I mean... There is no, I don't think there's any quiz format in Snapchat, but our, our editors were like clever enough to like take that BuzzFeed idea and make it work within the context of this offsite platform. Um, seems to be a pizza meme this week. That was a lot of pizza content, but um, if you guys don't follow BuzzFeed stories, you should. It's really, really fun. Um, so what about live? I mentioned live earlier. Um, we're not publishing one newspaper a day or one magazine a month. Um, this is the internet. So what kinds of things does BuzzFeed do to connect with its audience in real time? I mean, news is a good way, right? Um, and the news team started doing something really interesting with Twitter. Um, like, you know, if there's a fast-moving, breaking situation, think of, like, Charlie Hebdo attacks or something like that where you don't quite know what's going on and there's little bits of information coming out. Sure, you could tweet out, hey, here's our live blog with updates. Come to BuzzFeed.com. And, like, you're in Facebook and you're like, nope. Or you're in Twitter. Um, so, as a, you know, that's a strategy, but, like, again, like, how many people are going to really go through that? Probably just your hardcore audience. Um, so, they sort of, like, got into this idea of these bundled at replies. This is, like, probably how Twitter intended this. You know, these are two friends of mine from San Francisco talking about dog stuff. Um, but they're sort of out of the, like, the reply is out of the chronology, but, like, the app is smart enough to kind of, like, know that, oh, you're at replying her and you're answering her, so, like, let's show that to users together so that they can, like, more easily, like, follow the thread. Um, so they take ideas like this and they're like, oh, we can do that with ourselves. Um, so, you know, it's like uh, the death of former Israeli leader Shimon Perez, you can... Uh, at reply a string of updates and take advantage of all these like cards and images and um, you know once you get to like a few three four five it starts to roll up so it only shows like the original one and the last one and it just the platform takes care of itself so it's like a very very cheap way to experiment um, because you don't have to design or build anything it's just making smart use of existing platform features And we've been partnering with Facebook on Facebook live streams. Um, 
I think one of the first ones was uh, we had an interview with President Obama in the White House. It kind of crapped out, so we had to switch over to YouTube. But uh, we've also had a lot of like actors and musicians stop by our office. So I get to see like B-list, C-list kind of <laughs> performers. Uh, but it's really fun. It's really fun. You walk down to your desk and there's someone like Shaggy performing. Um, <laughs> uh, but on the first day of Facebook Live, launch day, something amazing happened. It seemed totally random, I think. Caught a lot of people off guard. Um, and maybe not what Facebook had in mind for their product. But uh, did any of you guys see this? Come on. Is there a sound? No? Want, want. Um, we got more than 800,000 people to simultaneously watch these two BuzzFeed employees stretch rubber bands around a watermelon for 45 minutes. <laughs> Everyone waiting for, like, the watermelon to explode, right? Um, and, like, it was excruciating and annoying, and, like, you could not look away. You're like, when is it going to happen? And, again, 45 minutes later, um, we were waiting, too. Like, we were all, like, standing there with our phones. <laughs> Um, wait for it. Hold on. Is this going to play? Oh, here. And you could tell these, they're like, oh, God, I don't want to do it. I want to. <laughs> the sound is really nice. I wish the sound, maybe I didn't capture the sound, but it's really hilarious. Um, what's going to happen? <laughs> She's like, really? Oof. <laughs> Just building this anticipation. Um, and this audience, and like, this is the kind of thing you're like, yo, you gotta check this out, take your phone out, like, go on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> so satisfying, isn't it? <laughs> so yeah, 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 it was a stunt. Um, but I don't think it's as stupid as, as people, as people might think. It, you know, when we're presented with new platforms for expressing our ideas, we dive in and head, head first and experiment and see, like, again, is this what Facebook wanted? The, the headline to be on uh, on launch day, I don't know, but uh, we made some press. Um, and I love Jack Schaefer on the right here. He's re he was replying to some criticism in, in the New York Times co media columnist was like, "Oh, is this the future of journalism?" And like, he came back with like, "Yo, your paper is like a long history of writing about cats, so like, we're gonna be fine. Like, calm down. Um, it's not the end of the world." Um, anyway, that's a look at how we play with format, tone, framing, that kind of thing. How BuzzFeed is BuzzFeed. Um, I like to ask again, like, you know, what do we learn through all this experimentation? Well, we learned how important it is to try things out, see what works. Um, throw a million ideas against the wall, measure them, watch them. Um, you know, depending on the platform or the kind of content, whether it's a video or a post or a snap, you know, you might look at share rates, you might look at content views, different platforms mean different things. Um, but like, once you have some metrics and everybody is like playing by this um, sort of analytic learning game, um, you can find out what works best and see what re resonates best and, and make more of that stuff. Um, again, make things people want to share. Um, if our goal is to find and grow new audiences and harness the advantages of, of social media, then we have to make things people want to share. Um, doesn't necessarily mean clickbait headlines, um, because I think people are smart and they catch on to that strategy pretty quickly. 
Um, I think even Facebook and Google might penalize you for, for, for using those uh, tactics. Because um, you don't want to get a reputation for being inauthentic and not credible, because who's going to share that garbage headline? Um, so we just try to focus on making enjoyable and informative stuff. Take it from there. Make it personal. Um, again, identify communities like LGBT or kids that grew up in the 90s with bad music um, and make engaging stuff for them. Uh, this is where, again, having a really diverse young staff can help generate a, a range of good ideas. Um, I did really bad on this test, despite being a very big 90s music fan. Um, but we also employ a personal tone for news coverage. Uh, writing quick catch-up summaries instead of having to scroll through headlines and reading headlines, like, we can just kind of, like, quickly catch you up. Because we know you're not pulling that app out, like, every 10 minutes. You're going to pull it out in the morning. You're going to pull it out at lunch or when you're in the elevator. So, you know, giving you a little catch-up at the top that updates throughout the day is good. And sprinkling in some, some emoji for texture is also good. Um, I love when... Uh, Notifications, news notifications come through and they have emojis in them. It's so cool. Um, duh, go where users already are. You know, again, earlier in my career at the Times, we were so focused on, like, we've got to get more people to come in and we're going to build this beautiful stuff and put it out there and that's going to make them come to us and, and drive advertising up and, and, and drive subscriptions. And, like, you know, there's some, you can, you can get some success out of that, but, uh, users aren't sitting around refreshing your, your homepage. They're not pulling your app out, probably, unless you're some of the people in this room. Um, so, again, to grow, you have to be okay publishing off-site. And even more, you should tap into the unique characteristic, uh, characteristics of those, of those platforms if it better helps you tell your story and reach your audience. Make free work. Easy, right? Um, I know this is like a main pain point for a lot of publishers these days. Um, one of the reasons BuzzFeed can't afford to be less concerned about display advertising and our business model, um, or sorry, our business model is a little bit different than uh, traditional outlets. Um, we basically make money directly producing posts and videos for brands. Um, we use the same techniques and tools that the editors on the editorial side use. Um, I should say that teams are completely separate. And the news department would never would never be involved in creating ads, but um, you know the creatives and the editorial staff they do see what each other does and they do talk and they share ideas and they follow what works. Um, this post looks like a plausible BuzzFeed post. It's ten historical badasses you're probably unaware of, right? Um, scrolling down, it's got these lovely illustrations, these short little vignettes. It looks like a BuzzFeed post. You kind of don't even realize it's an ad, right? It's like very beautiful and inspiring and interesting. Um, you know, it's that same listicle format. They make it in the same CMS that they'll make a funny editorial post in. Um, and when you get to the bottom, you know, there's another disclaimer about, oh, this was, you know, created for a political action uh, organization client of ours. Um, and I know a lot of people think that there's something distasteful about mixing ads um, in with editorial content. Um, but the way we look at it, since we're the ones creating them, we're coming up with the ideas, like we don't really... Brands don't come in and pitch us. Like, we pitch them. Um, we can apply our standards, same techniques that we know work. And um, I think it brings real value to advertisers. Um, and for that, they'll pay more than they will pay for a shitty banner ad on the corner of your article. So um, we promote these on our site, and we will purchase ads on platforms like Facebook. But a lot of people just share these on their own, and that's, like, free. That's like, oh, you're sharing our ads out. This is, like 
free ad distribution. <laughs> um, so it's a, it's a much more sustainable business model and one we can scale. Um, you know, we're starting to push into countries around the world, and, and the first step is to try to build an audience there, but like like Japan, for instance, or, or in the UK. But um, what follows then, if that works, and we do but find like crack that audience nut, um, we then start hiring up creative teams and, and start selling, and like that's sort of like the the growth pattern. Which brings me to Global's next. Um, I didn't talk much about international other than just now, but um, I know I've seen numbers. I can't remember quite what it is for, for platforms like Facebook and YouTube, but they have more daily users outside of the United States than in. Um, and that's been a huge vehicle for their growth, right? Like, so like everybody in the United States had a Facebook account five, ten years ago, whatever. Um, you can't really grow that more. So where they went to grow was, was outside the U.S., and it's been huge. Um, that's not really yet true for content companies like BuzzFeed. I think it's harder. Um, it's more expensive. You've got to start opening offices in places like London and Berlin and Paris and Rio and Tokyo. Um, but, you know, we're doing that in a small way, and we're starting to make those personal connections with new people um, in their language and culture and trying to adapt the best of what other offices are doing and adapting it to the local culture. So stay tuned on that. I think that that's going to be a huge a huge thing for growth. Um, there's a lot of room to grow there. That's BuzzFeed in 2016. Uh, <laughs> maybe this wasn't the lighthearted frivolity you were expecting from a talk called BuzzFeed, but I wanted to really convey the amount of thought and effort that goes into creating these moments that we enjoy and share every day. Um, a lot of publishers are trying to copy things we do like the listicle format was, or 16 random headline things to write. Um, you know, they try to get clickbaity. But what I don't think they can copy is the years of experimentation and data feedback loops that informs what we do and how we do it. Um, and I know probably most of you don't work at big media companies like me, like I have most of my life, but um, maybe this talk is not directly uh, applicable to your job, but obviously you consume this stuff and you share this stuff and, and you live with this stuff. Um, but if there's one thing I can leave you with um, that's a little more general is, again, as designers, creators, um, we can bring delight and insight to people with the, with the things we make, but we can also play an important role in building a growing business if we fully understand the challenges, the opportunities in front of us, listen to our users, and uh, be willing to adapt. So... That's it. Thank you. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you so much. So thank you for bringing up Shaggy. <laughs> kind of wondered what happened to him. <laughs> um, we're going to take a break now. We will meet here at 11, and it's your last chance. If you want to do an emoji, do it this break, because we're going to close the competition. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Velkommen tilbage. Velkommen. Vi øh, har et hæftigt program foran os, så vi skynder os videre til den næste taler. Så øh, er I klar? Ja? I'm, sorry, I, I was speaking Danish. Sorry. Totally blank. It helped. It helped. People are looking at me like this, and I was like, okay, something's wrong. So, our next speaker started her way studying Master of Science at the Technical University of Denmark. She worked in the field for a couple of years before studying graphic communication at the same institution she's working and representing today, the Danish School of Media and Journalism. The School of Media and Journalism is a training and knowledge center for the media and communication sector, and it has a strong focus on talent, lifelong learning and innovation. Now she will take us through the shifting design paradigms from storytelling to geometric responsive design systems. She will discuss the strategies for appealing to feelings. Please give a big welcome to Anne Mette Møller-Hartelius. Thank you. Is it working? Can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's more. It's the first PDF. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, no, no. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Getting the presentation ready. I just wanted to let you know that Jeremy is looking at all the emojis, okay. and um, I'm kind of curious. Did anyone make any emojis that they want to promote? Yeah. What kind of emoji? What was you inspired? Uh, I made I, I made a pink uh, cloud, yeah. a pink a smiley cloud. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we can get a microphone so I don't have to stand. <laughs> we are ready. Great. So uh, good luck in the competition. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Congratulations with the cow or whatever. <laughs> okay. Thank you for uh, the invitation and um, and uh, I really enjoy being in this beautiful house. That's modernistic and typical Danish design. Um, Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, the paradigm shift that has been going on for the last 10-20 years in graphic design, and um, and um, and as, desi- as a designer and with many of my other design colleagues, we find that a little bit di- disturbing or sad that uh, design seems to 
to conve- uh, converge towards uh, a more uniform, conform uh, expression these days, and that's globally. All the big companies seem to, to have this tendency. So, uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that and also about how, what can we maybe do about it. So <clears throat> these are some uh, pictor- pictorial uh, logos. Uh, I hope you know some of them and they, I hope you get some emotional feeling when you see some of them at least. Or these maybe, maybe some of them, maybe the Starbucks logo sh- uh, makes you smell coffee or maybe the Apple logo makes you feel something. But be, and that's what pictures can do. They can uh, awake some feelings which words cannot do. And um, and, um, and all these picture marks are living a very hard life these days because we don't see much of these kinds of logos anymore. Um, so what has happened since the beginning? In the, in the beginning of corporate visual identity, uh, everything had to be very consistent and uh, in, in, uh, in systems and st- uh, controlled by design programs. Uh, it was his uh, merit mostly. For Rand, somebody mentioned him yesterday. Also, he uh, he uh, he made a revolution, in, and actually, he he was the first graphic designer in the world. Before him, that this designer was not designers; they were artists and commercial artists. But he invented the uh, the term graphic designer and corporate visual identity, and he. Uh, managed to convince corporate owners that they need a genius logo to to appear genius. So if the company had a genius logo that was consistent and and uh, really strict towards every touch point, then the company was also perceived uh, genius and trustworthy. So that was his um, approach, and uh, and that uh, led to 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 a lot of uh, design manuals and guidelines throughout the world in these years of the, uh, the 60s and 70s, and that was the golden age of corporate visual identity. <coughs> and they all, uh, this is a Danish one for, for the railway system, and Deutsche Bank, and uh, Swiss, and they were all very um, minimalistic and, uh, and very controlled. And it wasn't anybody who could uh, who could use the design guidelines. That was only meant for educated designers, and that you can trust that they they, they knew what they were doing. Uh, but then something happened that threatened this golden age of design. In the early 90s, the the DT uh, desktop publishing appeared. So everyone could suddenly make a graphic design that was copying or mimicking the, the big company's graphic design. So a, any small uh, designer or not designer, anybody could, could copy these uh, fairly easy logos. So, <clears throat> so there was this whole under subculture of graphic designers that threatened this, uh, these uh, big companies that made visual identity. So, so they had to find out uh, a way to survive. And then luckily they, there was uh, branding that was a, um, a science that has been developing besides graphic design. And suddenly those two uh, uh, found together and 
um, and they supplemented each other very well. So then the, the companies could be uh, unique and big again because you, you need to have a brand strategist and a, and a designer or several, and that could not be copied by small companies. So that was the beginning of a new golden area of, of visual identities where, where branding was the driver. And uh, this was one of the pioneers. He was working from America, and, uh, and he, he, uh, he was very much into uh, uh, empathy and knowing the, the, the user. He was the one that invented the, the, the well-known uh, term, uh, if your company was a car, what kind of car would it be? There were those kinds of workshops he, 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 uh, he did with his clients. Um, and this is some of his brains, or their brains. Another one was this from, from London, Wolf Ollins. He was more strategic, uh, founded. He said designer's strategy made visible, and he wanted to uh, work as close to the director as possible and with the director and influence this, the, the way they conducted the firm. So, so design was a very integrated part of, of company strategy. Um, so, and he made some of these that are, some of them are provocative, uh, but that was strategy made visible. Uh, and, yeah, but still, uh, there was pretty much control with the, with the visual identity, the corporate identities, and the, there were still design manuals that had to be followed by designers, so, you couldn't tell, for instance, some random employee in a company to make a brochure or, or a, a poster because it, it wouldn't be on brand. So, so they still held very close the design manuals and they were not public. So, but then something new happened. In, uh, in 1991, Tim Berners-Lee invented the internet and, uh, and Facebook came later and, and then iPhone, all this technology revolution, uh, yeah, that was a digital revolution actually. And, uh, and that changed the whole paradigm again very much. Because now uh, any, any employee could make a, a, a poster or, a, or a, um, a brochure. They could just, the design manual became uh, available for everyone. It was online now and everybody could uh, just take the guidelines and, and, and make whatever they, they felt like. And that made a little risk of maybe it, it, it wasn't totally on brand anymore if, if anybody could, could mess with the design manuals or guidelines, but, but that was not the most important, or is not maybe the most important thing. The most important thing is that, that, they are there, that, uh, that the company is uh, visible on, on as many touch points as possible. So that's more important than, than being strictly on brand. So the new credo, freedom to explore while staying on brand. That's, uh, that's actually the, the new way of thinking. And in the back, in the previous paradigm, it was uh, more like consistency is king. And now it's freedom to explore while staying on brand. So... Uh, so that, that's maybe why the, the, the need for, for freedom, but staying on brand, maybe that's why um, um, uh, the identities become so, uh, so uniform, so con conform, because, 
they they need to be very um, uh, robust. They they don't need to change a lot. If if anybody mess with them, they need to stay pretty much the same, <laughs> no matter who is is messing with them. So so this is, for instance, a typical example of. Uh, this kind of new identity. It's, it, this is from an, a school in, uh, in the, it is a design school in, in Barcelona called Aina, uh, made by a very, very good design company called Klasse BCN in Barcelona. Um, and they invented this system with uh, four cornerstones that, that should define each corner on uh, no matter which format. It can fit every format because it just it just uh, stretches the corner where, where the corner should be. So this is the concept, and uh, you can, it's up to the user to fill in what's, what's in between, but the corners can, can move. And that, can, that looks very nice on, on printed material. Uh, and it has a certain, you can recognize this because of this concept. It's, it's, it's a little bit uh, unique to define these corners this way. <clears throat> and it still looks good on printed uh, material. You can put whatever uh, other content in it you need. You can even change uh, typeface. That's okay, as long as you have the corners. Uh, they even have a door uh, where, where it, it applies very well because when the door opens, the, the concept is, is visible because the corners follow the format. Uh, but when it comes to digital representation, it, I think it becomes a bit dull when it's just the logo stamped in the corner like this. What, where is the, the, the corner concept now? So that's, and, and that's a little bit uh, sad, I think. And here's another example of, uh, this is the design uh, association of, of Danish designers that there was two associations that merged in t last year and uh, they made a new logo. Uh, and um, this is from their design manual that you can all see online. And, and I, took it, I, I, I took it with here because uh, uh, the, the, the description of the concept, if you, if you uh, replace the word Design Denmark, the name of the brand, if you replace that, that with any other, Brand, it, it could it could be uh, relevant for any company. It says the new visual identity for company is an agile and flexible system. The notion is that a broad and creative organization like company should not be tied to a limiting visual identity. As displayed in the following, the new visual identity offers great flexibility in terms of typography, colors, and photos. So everything is everything is free. The only uh, the only constant is the big D and the small D. But you can change the uh, typeface with these two letters uh, as long as you just have these two letters. Uh, everything is okay. So so that makes the, the for instance the homepage like this. And you cannot even see the Ds. You only have uh, a pretty generic typeface here. It looks like Helvetica. It is not Helvetica, but it, it, it's similar. Uh, and then blue and black colors. <coughs> and that could pretty much be for any company, I think. So it looks, still looks very good on print. And 
print here. It looks cool and trustworthy, but it, it is pretty much generic to my opinion. I'm looking at my design colleague. <laughs> I don't know if you agree. <clears throat> uh, so, so is this a trend or what? Um, I tried to assemble some logos that has this expression, and there are really, really many. Uh, these are some of them. There. They're just a word written in Helvetica, and that's the, the logo. Um, and the uh, quote up here is from from a designer. Uh, uh, he said, uh, "If you think of ice cream, Helvetica is a cheap, nasty supermarket brand made of water, substitutes, and vegetable fats." The texture is wrong, and it leaves a little bit of funny aftertaste. So, so it's not so flattering, and uh, and it's it's you be cute. I don't know that word in English. It's everywhere. Helvetica now these days. So, for instance, Club Tegel, that's a Danish culture house. Uh, they just had a new logo. They changed from the old logo to, to a name written in Helvetica. Uh, this is also a Danish brand uh, uh, film festival. Okay, thanks. Uh, same. They, they had a little twist with something that, that references to, to films in the old logo. In the new logo, they have only a name written in in a geometric, or, yeah, in a, a grotesque fund. Uh, this is a design school in London, same. The old one with, maybe you can discuss if it's good or not, but the new one is also uh, Helvetica and generic. You see, just had a new logo, same. The old one had some uh, tell something about themselves. The new one is just the name written in Helvetica. Same with DSB. Gap, they, cha- they tried to change the logo in 2010. It lasted for a week, and then they was, had this shitstorm, and they had to go back to the old logo. So I, I took a picture of my iPhone the other day to see if, if this trend, how it works on as small logos as apps. And, um, and, and, I, and suddenly it struck me that this reminds me of this. Uh, I don't know if you see if any, there are any chemists here. But then I thought, wait, why are we trying to appeal to chemists uh, these days? Are there many chemists among designers these days, or what? So, and you even have the, you even have some of the the elements. You have uh, indium, in, and you have uh, you have uh, TM. Where is that? Tulium, and you have uh, tungsten two times. And you have flor- f- if there's fl- fluorine, and so on. H is helium or hydrogen. So that's really strange. And why is it that we want that? Isn't that strange? So, so my point is that pictures appeal stronger to feelings than words. So why don't we use that? We we just seems to have forgotten about that, and we are losing a whole range of of opportunities to appeal to, to, to people. Um, so you, you, you know the biggest decision in life are based on what you feel. For instance, who you're going to marry or who you're going to kill. Or, or Maybe that's not. <laughs> but feelings are, are controlling our behavior pretty much. So uh, I, I made this with a client um, 
that was it was a publisher and they were trying to uh, be conscious about how uh, the tone of voice we are talking to with different different uh, audiences and uh, and then i needed a tool to to help them so the this bottom line here this scale here was made by a colleague of mine called Ole Munk and he uh, he had made this scale about uh, that's about visual appeal eye catching what is uh, the best eye catchers and and photos are the best eye catchers and body copy are not so good eye catchers so if you want to really attract the eye you make something uh, that looks realistic like something from the real real world infographics is in between but I needed something, uh, um, uh, another dimension to that, because you can have several kinds of photos. So I applied the rhetorical uh, appeal, um, yeah, from the Greek, uh, you know, the Greek rhetoric, and you can use that visually. So, so Peters, Eters, and Logos, the two uh, highest, Peters and Eters are feeling appeals, and Logos is um, sensibility appeals. So you can say that pathos appeals to the heart, ethos to the gut, that's trustworthiness, and logos is just to the brain. So the, all the logos today, or the converging trend is that the logos seems to all be placed here. Uh, they all are very, it's just some body copy, nothing, nothing particularly uh, personal, and, and then it's just the name. So, then I made this just to aid. I had really much much fun doing it, but I don't know. It's to aid uh, design of visual identity today. So, but it's just for fun. Um, so I thought, why don't we use all this potential anymore? There are so many possibilities. You can have, uh, you can uh, appeal to the to the pleasure center in the brain as. Basak said yesterday, there's these buttons in the brain you can press that makes f- people feel good. We don't do that anymore. So again, feelings are very important. This is from psychology. Uh, it's called cognitive diamond, cognitive psychology, and, and uh, it's just to show that feelings controls. It, it, everything starts with a thought, but that goes so quickly. So you, you feel that you, you, it, it feels like it starts with the feeling. And the feelings uh, uh, impact the the body, and the body, if you're tense or something, that uh, affects the the behavior. So feelings are really important to address. And and there are so many feelings we can address. There are actually about 600 of them. And this is from an old 82 uh, research. uh, uh, I found this, and it shows some of the 600 feet. (coughs) <coughs> Sorry, feelings. <coughs> so, oh, I don't have much time. Uh, okay. Um, so, so what can we do to awake feelings uh, to, in the audience? And, uh, for instance, one of the things we can do is to, uh, to, to, uh, yeah, uh, to use legacy and, and, and storytelling. And that has been done a lot some years ago. Every brand should have a story. You know, that storytelling was very hard. So everybody wanted a story. So they sometimes invented a story just to have one. Uh, but the really old brands like Lacoste or Spencer, Marks and Spencer, or some, they really have legacy. And, and that is, a, is actually a good value for them because that 
evokes a feeling of trust. Um, and uh, so, and the old uh, brand, the old logos from before uh, before Paul Rand, they were often uh, they were often telling stories like this one, for instance. And that's a very sweet story about uh, about the, the dog listening to his late owner, and the the painting was painted by the owner's brother. And this painting was discovered by uh, this company owner, and he thought this story is perfect for my company that makes uh, uh, products with uh, very good sound. So, so for instance, this logo would would be up here. It has visual appeal because it looks like a photo, and it also has a, a huge appeal to to feeling. You really feel something when you see this cute dog listening to his late owner. So. Here's another storytelling brand. Uh, I really have no time, I think, so I just have to go through these. Uh, this uh, is the same. There is a story about a little girl, and 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 uh, it's it's actually a salt company, but but the little girl evokes some feelings. Um, another example from Nestle, uh, the uh, uh, what is it called? Yeah, they they make baby food. And they started as a baby food company, and uh, and they actually had a very good legacy because the the um, the arm of coat of the of the founder was um, was had a nest on it, and nest had connotations to to caring about children, so it was a relevant picture, and they used that of course to to create a very uh, strong uh, logo here. But there are some new ones that does the same, luckily. So, for instance, this one has just been made last year. I'm, uh, it's, it's really nice to see that they have uh, real, that they still have the picture of the apple. That's a university in Denmark, and um, originally it was uh, it was a, a tree that could have some connotations about tree of knowledge, but it is actually a reference to the um, location of the university that was located on an, an apple plantage. Um, but then the tree survived as a branch with an apple, and in 2015 it still was there, and then they had put this twist with a leaf leaving the branch. That was so cute because that means something. And that means, when that, that symbolizes a student going out the world, coming from this place. So, so that's a, that's a nice little example of of, uh, of uh, storytelling still today. This one is brand new, uh, a logo that uh, they tried to make it look like a legacy logo. So they invented this legacy about a, a little bit rebellion brand uh, with a bird that uh, break out his cage. So they designed a figure figure of a broken cage, but it's brand new. So. And that, that's a smart strategy because when, when everybody else looks bold and conform, then when you look, when you have a figure, then you stand out. I think the, another approach can be having a mascot like a chipmunk. Um, and that uh, has to do with, with, with a, an, a really uh, a profound human need for for mascots, if you have been reading, uh, what's it called, Clan of Bear Clan, or the Clan of the 
bear cave or something like bear, yeah do you know what that is Ulebjørn's clan what's it called yes clan of the bear cave thank you that that's uh, that's about uh, yeah ancient people and 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 how they um, how they are attached to their mascots or their talisman or something and that from back from then that's uh, that's uh, uh, that has something to do with human nature so mascots are also a good way to 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 stand out and that has also been done from from the beginning of of uh, branding or not branding but uh, logos for instance this one or this one which has become very popular with Japan's it's a Danish brand it's a supermarket in Denmark and Japan's are coming in buses to buy tote bags and they just love this girl because she (laughs) reminds them of something Japan in cute and cosplay or something so it, uh, it has a huge appeal in Japan or these uh, in American politics maybe we should not talk so much about (laughs) (laughs) and then uh, and then I have a colleague in another uh, school and she has done a a brilliant work uh, studying mascots in branding or in actually in packaging mostly but uh, she found out or she found that somebody had found out that that, uh, you can um, you can uh, rank them in uh, what are most appealing so the most appealing mascots are those that uh, resemble humans the most so the chip mo- the chip monkey or the what is male chip male male chimp sorry i have the baddest memory male chimp that would be that would be over here because it looks like a human so so that's a pretty strong brand and and if it also has eye contact uh the um, awareness rises 28%. So, uh, and the more abstract it becomes, the lesser appealing they seem. So, I try to just put them in here quickly. All of those have have uh, emotional appeals because they are mascots and appeals to some uh, uh, human needs. And the more they look like humans or realistic photos they appeal and the less the more abstract they are uh, the less eye-catchy they are but they're still appealing because they have some some big idea in them and the last uh, take you can to uh, take <laughs> is uh, is uh, something that has to do with something called visual trope tropes and that's a, a, a figure of speech from rhetoric, but you can transfer that to to, uh, to visual communication. And it's a huge area. Okay, I have to stop. Uh, but And that has to, a lot to do with push, pushing the pleasure button in the brain. So, for instance, if you can make a visual riddle and you can make people engage in how to... what, does, what Where is the hidden message? What is it? Then you create some uh, resistance in the brain, uh, and, and you, when you, when you uh, solve the problem, then you feel a great relief, and you will never forget this brand. So that's a very good uh, take. Uh, and there are many of them. Compara- comparison is one of them uh, that's used a lot. You have a property uh, in, a, in a company, and you want that to be expressed uh, 
visually or metaphors metonyms that's uh, something that has uh, indicates uh, that indicates the brand it's just a it's not directly the whole brand but just something that indicates the brand has been here or synecdoty doki it's called in english that's just showing a part of the whole and that implies the whole uh, brand humor is also good for instance the the, the scottish dog for a supermarket in denmark If you are Dane and you know the story about that, then it's funny. Uh, but it it it's, it you, it requires that you are uh, that you understand the culture. So that's the weakness about these. But Scottish people are known for being uh, having tight the uh, posture, or you know they have they have been picked. What's uh, Yeah, they don't want to pay much. So and so that's why it's a Scottish dog. Because the, the 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 supermarket has cheap merchandise. Okay, so if we put these in this scheme, then uh, there'll be a whole new uh, variety of many many more possibilities, and that's what I would like you to think more about and be more conscious about using the whole uh, the whole uh, palette. So go out, be brave, no matter if you are a design buyer or a designer. Then be conscious about uh, remembering to uh, to talk to the feelings also. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. So, in addition to to hosting the world's biggest collection of cat videos, YouTube empowers everyone.
on um, social media, uh, Facebook and Twitter, and you can vote, and the one who gets the most likes will win. Um, we will go with the voting until the coffee break, so there's plenty of time for you to like look at them and see which one you like. And speaking of emojis, our next speaker is referred to as the Lord of Emojis. <laughs> He's the Australian founder of Emojipedia, which is a site of all the emojis containing more than 1,800 emojis. He's also the creator of World Emoji Day and a member of the Unicode Emoji Subcommittee. And he's cited as an emoji expert. So I hope you have enough emoji vibes going on, because here's Jeremy Birch. Thank you. July 17th. Grab your emoji. It's World Emoji Day. We're having a party. All around the world, all across the globe. Get on a plane and watch the sunset go. Doesn't matter who you are, cause everybody uses emoji. Everybody there just because uh, <laughs> I'm aware they'll want you soon. <laughs> I can't take full credit for that. That was Jonathan Mann. He's uh, known as Song A Day Man on YouTube. He sings a song every day and he's done this for seven years now. It's incredible. I don't know how he does it. Uh, I'm aware the lunch is next, so I'm going to keep it moving along because, you know, priorities. <laughs> Quick show of hands. Uh, who has ever used an emoji ever? feel like we're looking 99% or so. It's, it's true. It's, it's, I probably should have asked who has never used an emoji. Has anyone literally never typed an emoji on their phone? Nobody. Literally, I know this side of the room can't see this side and this side can't see that side, so I could lie to you, but nobody in the room has ever been in a situation where they haven't used an emoji, and we've only had it on our phones for five years at the most, unless you're from Japan. So what I want you to do, I want you to grab out your phone right now. Everybody, grab your phones out. Uh, don't start gaming. Uh, I want you to open up your notes. Open up your notes app. It could be a messaging app. It doesn't really have to be notes. And look down in this frequently used section. Some phones, I know it's a bit different. Some of them are most recent. Some of them are frequently used. Uh, some of them are mix. This is actually, I didn't mock this up for... for 
to make it look like a good selection. They're kind of weird, my most recent ones. I've got two men there, a rainbow, a panda. I think I was testing something. I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, Danish flags. You can tell this is recent. Um, what I want you to do, I want you to type into your notes the most recent five that show up down your most frequently used. Type them, type them in, one, two, three, four, five. And I want you to show the person next to you or anyone around you, just sort of compare notes, see if they're, see how similar they are. Uh, see if you've got any in common. You should have some in common, but some people do some weird stuff. <laughs> Yep. Okay. And when you've had a good look, when you've all had a good look, bring your phones back to yourselves. I want you to be looking at your own phone again. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you what I think, at least one of these should be one of the following. Uh, show of hands, if one of your most recent five was one of these. Oh, that is, I'm going to say again, 98, 99%. And I'm not, I'm not psychic. I'm not John Edwards. I'm not talking to your family. Uh, they'd look like this if you're on a Samsung phone. A few of you, I see it's mostly iPhones here. How good is the heart eyes emoji on Samsung? It's all going, whoa. <laughs> uh, and the, the crying one as well. That's, that's hilarious. And how do I know this? How do I know that probably one of these was in your most recent five? Emoji tracker. It's a website that monitors real-time emoji use on Twitter. Uh, I'm not showing you the animated version. There's an epilepsy warning on there. When you go to the site, if you've ever been there, it literally flashes green every time an emoji is posted on Twitter. Which one? So it looks like this. It looks like it's coming right at you and it's... It, gives you a headache in no time. But nonetheless, they're the top five. I merged the two. There's two hearts, and they're very similar, so I merged those. Uh, so that's global. They're the, the global most top five emojis used. But it sort of varies as well by country. They're universally what's used, but I did some research on Copenhagen and on the rest of Denmark. Figure out some, some local. Get some local. Apparently, this uh, <laughs> is true. That's from SwiftKey. They do an emoji report every year. Well, they did before they got bought by Microsoft. So that's fun. That's, I guess that makes sense. Uh, here's one. It's also uh, from up here, but not from Denmark. Uh, they, they call uh, this the black moon. It's actually called new moon with face. Every emoji has an official name. And it looks like this on a couple of different platforms. Now, Apple's one, it's a bit... All right, so here's the thing. It, it looks creepy. It's a creepy-looking moon, and unfortunately, I don't condone this name, but people call it the molester moon. That is... Because <laughs> it, it looks like somebody hiding in the shadows, uh, sort of peering out from behind a bush or something. So I don't condone that, and I don't think that's what the Finnish are using it for, but uh, that's, that's what it said. Um, bit more local here. This is also from SwiftKey. Uh, drugs. Uh, apparently the Danish, not into the drug emojis. I, it's a bit of a stretch putting the mushroom in there too. <laughs> I don't know if, how many people use the mushroom referring to drugs, but I'm, I'm sure some people do. So apparently the Danes are very clean and the Portuguese are 
off the charts. Although, if you look at the scale there, we're talking, this is a tiny fraction. People, they don't use these emojis as much. The ones they like are the faces. People, we love ourselves. <laughs> we, humans, we like faces. It's been well researched that we just, we like looking at ourselves in the mirror. We like looking at other people. We like selfies. And we like the human faces. These ones. It's the ones, that's what we want to see. The rest of them, they're fun, but really this is what people, this is what people are using. And on Emojipedia, the top 50 emojis in 2015 were all, every single one of them was a person, a heart, or a hand gesture. Or to say that, an emoji, uh, you can kind of get there. So I got here on Tuesday and I went to this nice cafe. I don't know if anyone local has been there. It's called The Living Room. It was very nice. People on laptops doing some work. I've been there for a while. I had a couple of coffees, needed to go to the bathroom. And it was a two-story place. I, I kind of looked around. The staff were a bit busy, so I didn't want to bottle them. And there was nothing on the top floor. It was clear on the top floor, no toilets up here. Stairs downstairs. So I went, all right, go down the stairs. Everybody kind of looks at you when you're walking down these stairs. It's, I'm seeing a few nods down here that uh, you kind of walk down, you feel like you're walking into the entrance to the ball because everybody's just bored on their laptops and you see like a shining light from the door. So you're walking down, but you're trying not to be conspicuous. And I'm looking around trying to see a toilet sign and I don't want to do a, a lap. I don't want to sort of tiptoe around everybody's laptops looking for it. So I'm trying to scan it as I walk down the stairs. And there's a dark room over here. So I think, okay, I'll go into the dark room. And then at the end of the dark room, there's a corridor. And in the corridor, it sort of looks like this. There's some posters and there's a white door. And there's another white door. And I think, great, toilets. And then I think, oh, wait, maybe they're not. <laughs> there, was no, there was no signs on the doors here. There was no, there's a little thing down the bottom that looks like a, whether it's vacant or not. Nope, just a trick, little piece of metal. Uh, so I'm sitting there going, oh, hang on a minute. Maybe it's the kitchen. Maybe it's a private residence. It was a kind of weird bit of the cafe. So I do the universal thing. I go fiddle on my phone for a while, hoping someone will leave one of these doors if I pretend I'm just busy mashing a, a dead screen. Uh, thankfully, one of the doors, a guy comes out. I'm like, yes, that's, that's it. <laughs> so this moment takes me from this, and then I sort of, sort of happy, you know? But, <laughs> But nonetheless, this cringe moment that, that you've got before you walk in somewhere, you sort of, you want reassurance. You just want a sign, just a sign. Tell me, this is the toilet. This is the men's toilet. And that's what emoji is. It tells you when you send a message to someone and you put the emoji at the end, it tells you, it's reassuring. It tells you what the intent of the message was rather than just the message. The door by itself, terrible. Maybe an extra sign, an extra sign saying, please come in here, even better. Uh, so emoji is this guy. <laughs> Just reassuring, going, you're okay, it's cool. You've got the right tone, you understood. Sample message, I made this up, this isn't a real message. But let's say it is. Thanks for helping out, someone says sounds good. What happens if over dinner last night, when you were helping out, you thought you annoyed the person you're with? You had this niggling thought that you'd said something offensive about their parents or you know, where they're from or their job, and they send this back and you're thinking, are they mad at me? <laughs> They said sounds good, it should be a good thing, but you're still going, I think they're mad at me. I'm pretty sure, no, no, no. So instead, you send this, and they send this back, and you go, okay, maybe they're not so mad. Or they send that back, and you're like, yes. 
It's cool. It's fine. They, they, they weren't bothered at all. They, they're really happy. They've got party girls. They've got a little jazz hands. Meant to be a hug, by the way. That is meant to be a hugging face, but looks like jazz hands. Uh, and dinner. So that's, that's great. Emoji has the capability to take you away from being worried about this message for the next week that you've annoyed somebody into making it very clear that that person is happy. Uh, this happened to me last week, in fact, whereby... I had, sorry, uh, Rachel, my fiance, if she's on the live stream, uh, I, I sent her the wrong address for dinner. I completely wrong address, wrong side of town. She said, where are we going for dinner? Sent her the address. And then just before we were about to get there, I messaged and said, so sorry, wrong address. It's over there. Now, she's a nurse. She works night shift. She was working nights that night. She hadn't had much sleep. And I get this back. <laughs> And, and we all know it is not fine if you get that. <laughs> it is so not fine. And I don't mean this is a, a gender pejorative to say men, women. If I sent that anyone, that is, that is not fine. But if you put a thumbs up at the end or a smiley face, then maybe it is fine. The same words get changed context. And we used to use punctuation for this a lot. An exclamation mark there would have gone a long way. But no, that was a true representation <laughs> of, of how it was. Uh, so that's what emoji is, and that's why I think they're endlessly fascinating and important to document. So to flashback just a bit, Emojipedia, this is a site that I started a few years ago. It looks sort of like this. Basically, Google for emojis. You can, you can type an emoji in, or you can search for something. You can type in beach, and instead of just showing one emoji, it would show the bikini. It would show the swimming person, the wave. It would show the shell. Uh, you can try this later on. We've got all kinds of annotations in the background, making sure that what you search for works. Something we're looking at soon, hopefully, to do international, which is a real issue as well, but emojis have English names. So for a universal... Uh, people call it a universal language. Linguists yell at me when I say it's a language, so I'm not going to. <laughs> um, but, it's, but it's important to have these tools. Here's an emoji I showed you before. It's called grinning face with smiling eyes doesn't look like a grin, uh, but that's its official name, and it has a code. Every emoji has its own code in the background, or a code point in the Unicode standard. So that's what we list on Emojipedia. We say, here's the name, here's what it looks like. A couple of years later, the first one there is the first release on iOS. Apple updated it, they made it a bit higher res. You can't quite see here, but they got rid of some shading. But then this year, they changed it to look like this, just a month ago. I don't know whether any of you with iPhones, I saw a lot of iPhones, whether well, you noticed that that emoji has changed into this one. And why? Well, number one, the name. It was confusing before, but really, in a way, who cares what it's called? You care about what it looks like. But the real issue is that's what it looked like on every other phone. And so all these years, and a lot of you have probably had this happen, that if you sent this emoji trying to cringe and go, yeah, awkward situation, everybody else is getting this like you're laughing at it. <laughs> Apple doesn't change their emojis often, but, but they do sometimes, and we document it. That's, that's, it's really important to have this reference. It's almost a flaw in how it works, but it's inherent to how it works, and somebody needs it to be there to pick up the slack. Here's another one. Uh, this is called the Astonished Face. Until recently, it had X's as eyes on iOS. Looks like this on Samsung. Uh, so some of them are problematic. Some emojis look similar on different platforms. Some are problematic. Here's what it looks like on Android, on stock Android. Looks sort of drunk. 
Here's what it looked like on Android last year. This is Android until a year ago, very similar. Here's what it looked like on Android three years ago. Seriously, this is what every emoji on Android looked like three years ago. Uh, I don't know how this got released, to be honest. But it, it literally looked like you were sending an alien of everything. Everything was an alien. So people that would get it and you'd say, sounds great, see you later, alien. <laughs> Sorry about that, alien. No one was seeing the context of what the alien's doing. We were just seeing the alien. So Google came to their senses and replaced it. So emoji's sort of this weird middle ground where all the vendors have to work together that... Yes, they draw emoji their own way, but if they're too far apart from another one, they ruin the experience for their own users. Uh, you get simple ones where it doesn't really matter. You've got the cookie. It looks a bit different on HTC phones, Twitter, Windows, uh, Android, Facebook. It doesn't really matter. You know, It's not like someone would go and... Samsung. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know whether anyone at Samsung has ever used an emoji on another phone before because they do some weird stuff. And I, I just don't know. Are they doing it to be funny? Are they just messing with us or do they not care? I don't know. Um, this is what my iPhone looked like when I started Emojipedia. Oh, sorry. Am I still on? Yeah. Uh, when I started Emojipedia, my iPhone looked like this. It was all white. I'm ashamed to say I didn't even notice at the time that everybody was white. That's, that shows how, how far when people talk about white privilege, I literally, until someone brought it up a good year later, hey, why are all the people white? It hadn't even crossed my mind. Yeah, the smileys were yellow, but these were white. I missed out on this era, which was Japan. These are the Japanese emojis that were in Japan 10 years before we even saw them. I sort of jumped in about here. Just when we were getting skin tones was the debate. When I started Emojipedia, it was, why are they white? What should we do about it? And the answer was adding skin tones. So that the default became yellow, and then you could add different skin tones so that you could have a dark-skinned emoji or a light-skinned emoji. This year, gender is on the agenda. Uh, <laughs> we've got uh, women in the latest iOS update. Every woman that uh, existed has a male version and vice versa. So we get all these that are new. These are all the new women on iOS. And you'll notice they're all the m counterparts to existing male emojis. There was a, a male cop. Now there's a female police officer. There was a man with uh, doing a bow, or there was a man doing it being a sleuth or a spy, rowing, swimming. All the fun stuff were the male emojis, which is bizarre, but Japan, that's just, they came from Japan. Uh, and by the, by the, the other way around, these are the new men. So it, it kind of highlights how ridiculous the gender balance was when you flip it. And you see now that these are the new men emojis. And that's what the women were doing before. They were, they were the females. And nobody, it wasn't really noticed that much. And yet when you put it like this, it's very clear. You go, oh, why are all the men just holding their hands around and <laughs> doing this, getting their hair cut? Uh, so that's, that's been fixed. Uh, this is the landscape. When I started Emojipedia in 2013, I was writing and writing, writing articles, documenting things. I thought, this is fascinating. And I was getting this. I was getting nothing. Nobody cared. Nobody was paying attention. I'd put up a list. I'd go, isn't this interesting how this list of new emojis, how there's a slightly frowning face and no really deep frowning face? And everyone, don't care. Not interested. Fast forward to 2016. A friend sent me this. 
<laughs> we really, new emojis come out and it's literally breaking news. It's, <laughs> uh, which I don't want to disparage it, it's what I do, but it still amuses me to no end that this is a real, this is ABC in the US. We introduced to you, sorry to interrupt this program, there are new emojis coming. <laughs> there is a bacon, there is face palm, there is kiwi fruit. And we bring you this report right now. <laughs> so it goes to show you the, the different world we're in. We are in an emoji world. And there's nothing the media love more than a story about Apple, emoji, and something controversial. And then there was this. This year, Apple changed this emoji into this. How cute. How nice. And it's fair to say... America lost their minds. <laughs> they were mad. I was going to say everybody, but it was really quite isolated to the US. Some people in other countries, they found it amusing. Maybe they thought it was dumb or counterproductive or, or good or a good thing. Get rid of the guns. But there was so much of this in America. My inbox. <laughs> I'm not Apple. I didn't choose to do this. I thought it wasn't the smartest thing to do. I thought it's problematic that now there's a person that sends a toy, a water pistol on iOS, and they send it to Twitter or wherever, and it's now a real weapon. So you could say, I'm going to the park and I'm bringing this. <laughs> and then a million people are seeing I'm bringing a real gun. And it's funny, but it's, it's, it's crazy that Apple thought this was a good thing to do. I, I understand the motivation, but it's problematic. But nonetheless, here it is. Apple replaces water gun. We're back on the cable news. I like this because this is CNN doing Emojipedia live on the air. This is what we've been doing for years. We've got the name, we've got the code point. We show what it looks like on every platform. And this is literally... CNN being Emojipedia on air a couple of years later. So I thought that was great. I hope they had somebody good to, to discuss this. Oh, no. <laughs> Taking it very seriously, as you can see. <laughs> I was going to wear a shirt, but I thought I don't really wear... I don't wear, like, a, a shirt with a tie. I don't really do that. So I thought, no, no, I'll just wear my Mac icon shirt. And I'm in the CNN office, and everyone's all there in their ties and their briefcases. And... <laughs> I think they, they wondered who had walked in. But, uh, but anyway, it was fun. The, uh, the host there afterwards, as soon as we went off air, she was like, oh, that was great. We always, we always discuss such boring things. <laughs> so that was a, a nice little break. So uh, it's fair to say, emojis, they're taking over the world. They're, they're everywhere. This is something that Instagram put together, uh, showing their emoji use. This is only showing up from 2010 to 2015. Uh, shooting through the roof in number of posts on Instagram that include emojis. They did this little graph. Check it out later on. Uh, it's a nice little word, a map of which emojis are grouped together and which posts. You can sort of see the, the faces are all together. I love that the monkeys are grouped as faces, because they are. They're the emotions, but I quite like that. Uh, World Emoji Day, we saw earlier. It's something I started a couple of years ago. just thought there should be a day to celebrate emoji. Different companies do fun things. This is what the British Museum put together. They put together a campaign to get people to come and see some of their art. There's the great wave that Apple has made their wave emoji look like this famous tile work from Japan. And they have the real thing at the British Museum. Same with these Easter Island statues. Pepsi, did these Pepsi bottles for it. Happy World Emoji Day. Uh, 
July 17th is the best day of the year. Day is the best because of what day it is. An influx of emojis. Yes, OMG. What day is it? I'll let you say it. If you can do it without words, that'd be great. So if you're watching this on July 17th, Everyone gets involved. Uh, this is what the tweets were. I made the mistake. Again, the first year, nobody cared. The second year, it was just through the roof. I made the mistake of not getting anyone else to help with the Twitter or anything. And I'm sitting there watching a tweet come in, a tweet come in, a tweet come in. And then it, suddenly, every minute, there's 200 tweets flying in. Uh, too much, too much. So I've seen, you see a lot of stuff that people are doing with emoji. And there's good and there's bad. Some brands sort of get accused of jumping on the bandwagon, which can happen. This, this was terrible. <laughs> just, just appalling trying to, someone says, oh, emoji's cool. Can we do something about emoji on the Twitter? Don't do this. <laughs> People didn't like it. Then, no. <laughs> like, there is a time and a place. <laughs> So yes, emojis are fun, and yes, we can use them. But yeah, don't try, don't don't do that. Don't don't be Hillary in that context, anyway. Does anyone know who this guy is? I saw we had a few Snapchat hands earlier. One, couple, yeah. Oh yeah, pretty good, pretty good. Um, for those who don't know, his uh, name is DJ Khaled. He is the most popular man on Snapchat. Uh, here he is. His unsuspecting. I thought it was a joke or parody account when I first joined Snapchat. I'll be honest. They never said winning was easy. Some people can't handle success. I can. <laughs> I know what it comes with. Some people can't handle it. I can. The ladies always say, Cal, you smell good. I use no cologne. Cocoa butter is the key. Cocoa butter is the key. Beautiful day. Every chance I get, I water the plants. Lion. King of the jungle. Succeed, you must believe. Life is what you make it. So let's make it. Bless up. Egg whites, turkey sausage, wheat toast, water. <laughs> of course they don't want us to eat breakfast. So we're going to enjoy our breakfast. <laughs> I mean... It I don't know. This is, this is me every time I tune in. I don't know what I'm watching. I love that he's a positive force in the world. He says nice things. There's so much negativity. But what what is that? Uh, you noticed at the end he said they. That's his, his motive. He says uh, they don't want you to succeed. They don't want you to have this. They don't want you to have breakfast. So we will have breakfast. Uh, that's sort of his go-to. But he, there's one phrase that he uses a lot. He uses this phrase all the time. The key to more success is using the right soap. I only use dumb. A major key, never panic. 
Don't panic. When it gets crazy and rough, don't panic. Stay calm. In life, you have to take the trash out. If you have trash in your life, take it out. Throw it away. Get rid of it. Major key. Take the trash. <laughs> I don't know whether you caught this, but the, the phrase that he used every time, it's still there on screen. Major key. That's his thing. Taking the trash out, major key. He drops this every time he wants to say something. Every, it, it tells you that it's important. You know, major key alert. I'm about to tell you something. Kim's coming on my Snapchat. Uh, major key. He ended up calling his album out on this. He's a music producer. And really, as much as we laugh and it's hilarious and I still don't quite get it, the, the whole thing, uh, he's owned the key emoji effectively. He has, you see the key on Twitter, it's normally about him. People don't have to say his name. They see the key and they think of him. I, the, true story, the, the reason I came across DJ Khaled in the first place, I had no idea who he was. I was a pretty mediocre Snapchat user, was... I was on Emojipedia looking at our analytics and key emoji shot through the roof last December. And I went, what is going on? Why is the key emoji... It, it was always, you know, in the very bottom emoji tracker, bottom bottom quadrant down there. But he's owned it. He uses it everywhere. And he's a music producer. He didn't use the... Literally, didn't use the microphone with the, the song. He didn't use the CD. He just came up with the phrase. He says it every time. And that's his. And... I think you'd be nuts today to not pick an emoji for your brand or your company to use. It doesn't have to be literal. It could just—it can be any of them. Use it enough and people start to associate that emoji with you. And that to me seems so much more logical and more consistent with how people use it than Hillary Clinton, give me three emojis about debt. There's 1851 emojis at the moment. The number's a bit complicated to, to go into, but uh, that's the, the current tally and... There's heaps of them. Just pick one and use it. You can put them in text fields. You can put them in Twitter. You can put them anywhere there's text. And as much as I don't need to be here telling you, oh, use emoji, everybody, uh, I think it's really clever the way that DJ Khaled has actually taken a generic emoji that's not popular and really made it his own. One thing not to do, though, don't take someone else's. This is uh, MasterCard trying to get in, trying to do their own thing with major key. Again, no, nobody, <laughs> nobody wants brands stomping on other people's things. Just come up with your own thing. <laughs> it, it, it just looks silly and desperate when you jump on what someone else is doing. But you don't have to. You can do fun things. Coke registered this domain name. Emojis do work in domains, but only these WS and a couple of other obscure ones. So they registered this and redirected to Coca-Cola. Norwegian Airlines, they registered this for a competition they were doing. Uh, and if you're concerned about this sort of... I'm not a copyright lawyer, but there's weird things with can you use them for this or that. Generally, yes, but if you, but if you are concerned, these are completely free. There's one from Twitter and one from a company called Emoji One. They're completely free emoji sets that you can use for anything, as opposed to Apple's ones, which are probably fine, but, you know, every now and then you get big production companies, they'll email me and they'll say, can we use this on our TV show? And they'll show all of Apple's emojis, and I go, I don't know. <laughs> it's, you'd have to contact Apple and they don't get back to anybody. So pick one. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But, but just pick one. They're fun. They're amusing. They make you smile. You see this and you go... 
you just smile. That doesn't mean anything. These are just colorful emojis. Sprinkle them in what you do, and you'd be surprised at how much just thinking creatively. Don't just use emoji like my grandma and say, oh, I'm visiting my friends with their baby today, baby emoji, and I love the trees to the tree, tree emoji. You know, think outside the box. Be creative. And uh, before I go, there's a look at the new emojis coming out this year. Uh, if you're on an Android phone, you'd have already got a version of these, but iOS does not have them yet, but they have been approved. You'd have probably seen news about it before, the 72 new emojis, if you're watching American cable TV. Uh, here they are. This is what's coming up this year. These are our mock-ups, I should say. We, we design mock-ups of the new emojis that are approved in Apple style, to give you an idea. So uh, I was going to have a bit of time for some Q&A, but I think we might be cutting it a bit fine. So there's a design salon I'm speaking at later. We're going to talk about the emoji competition later. And thank you for having me, and come up and chat if you would like to. Thank you, Joe. Thanks. Thanks. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Cheers. Thank you so much. I have a little bit of practical information. Um, the next sessions will be the interactive sessions. Uh, the workshop will be in this room. So um, if you go and have lunch in that room, you will be kicked out 15 minutes before the session starts so they can prepare it. And the design salon will be in this room. So that's the other one. And then the last information is that we need you to vote on the emojis. So please do that. And see you after lunch. Thank you.
two, three, in. One, two, three, four, yet, yes. Testing one. Test two. One, two, three, four. One, two. One, two, one, two, three, four. Two, three, four. Oh, yeah, tak. En, to, tre, fire. En, to, tre, fire, fem. Jeg har 
finde på sex. Ej, det smager sygt godt, det der brød. and I give him to tell. I stopped over there for Basel. I just ran with my son when he came up and I gave him to Dubai when he was ready for school. Okay. So, this is really interesting. Nej, lad os... Okay, humor.
Jeg skal snige ind. Jeg skal til forældremøde, når vi er færdige her. Hvor gik din? Øh, jo, det er, det er et vildt godt sted. De er meget faglige. Altså, man er sådan lidt nogle gange. Men, øh. Men han har startet i øh, udflytter.
Historien er jo også, at Jeg troede lige, at jeg kunne... Uh, hej! Hej, hej, hej! Hej! Var du pludselig så fint? Jeg hørte, at der også var nogen om dig. Hvad? Der var også nogen andre, der kom til. Jeg har været pjernig i går til. Hvor var rigtig god.
ikke, jeg ikke hørt så videre, for jeg tænker, at det er skide travlt. Jeg vidste ikke, du havde lavet det. Det kunne jeg også have mig selv. Jamen, jeg har ikke lavet, jeg har ikke lavet, lavet det. Jeg er bare... Øh... Hey, Julia. Julia. Hello. A taking on then. Taking on and then. Hello. Hallo. Den vil. Tak for det.
through to text, really. We lost everything. We were doing face-to-face, we used to speak on the phone, and we're just degrading every time we get a new technology. We got we came up with less ways to communicate, and particularly with Twitter, Facebook, text messaging, emoji, 100%. That was part of why it filled that gap, was because there was a, a big gap, and you'd, you'd talk to people, and you'd lose the way to be humorous or sympathetic, or say, oh, I'm so sorry about that. I texted, I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> so yeah, absolutely, there's a, a huge loss, and now we're gaining new tools like emoji, like video, audio, we're kind of building it back up again. I'm like, well, these guys look. But, but just one follow-up there, I mean, we, we did live with text for about 200 years, and we're fine. <laughs> I guess we went from writing prose, we wrote books and articles and stories, to just conversations. We didn't used to write one line. Yo, how's it going? <laughs> you know, that's not what we used to do by text. We'd write a long letter, and we'd spend a week writing it, and we'd post it off, and we'd spend a lot of attention. But now we, we just go back and forth. It's replaced the day-to-day communication topic, conversation. So that's, that's the difference. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I think there is kind of a problem in terms of how software deals with emotions. I think there's some antiquated thoughts around, especially business or enterprise software, needing to be cold, needing to be professional because you are at work and you should not be doing anything but working. Obviously, people found other ways to not work. Uh, (laughs) We all knew there was a water cooler and that became like a thing that we would circle around. We'd talk about television, all these ways that we could express our personal beliefs or our tastes. But, you know, I think now we're starting to see a shift where it's okay to be a little human in the software. It's okay to bring your whole self to work every day, you know what I mean, Um, and express yourself in these certain ways. So I think it is lightening up a little bit, but I do think that um, software in general has kind of a a cold streak that is slowly warming up. Yeah, I mean, I just love to see it expand. I mean, I love to see people... um, I, I feel like some people are not very... I don't know if it's like they're not very good writers or what it is, but sometimes they have a hard time articulating what it is they're trying to say, and they can't put it into words. And so sometimes just an animated GIF or something. I mean, we actually use Slack on our design team at uh, Mailchimp all the time, and you go through our feed, and it's pretty much all just slash giphy something slash giphy something. <laughs> and we're just we do that all day long, and it's because it's efficient, it's quick, and it is actually kind of funny and it's humorous, and it's also kind of like rolling a dice. You never know exactly what you're going to get. Sometimes giphy's spot on, and sometimes it's like, well, that was awkward. Like, what was that? Sorry. Um, so sometimes the expression doesn't doesn't quite line up, but um, yeah. So in general, I think it's um, it's something that we use a lot, and something that um, uh, we use to communicate internally. So, but does it reflect a change in the society, in the way we work, in the way we consider work? Is it, are we less formal, less top-down? Is, is, is it, I mean, it is yeah. funny how, you know, grown-ups are, yeah. are speak teenage language, or it's funny how old institutions start using a very young language, and there's a class there. Yeah. It's also because something is changing. It's not only technology. Yeah, this is something that I actually struggle with on, on my team, because I, I manage a lot of uh, junior people who grew up in the digital age and are accustomed to texting and are accustomed to communicating that way all day long. And if left alone, they will sit there at their desk all day with their headphones on from nine to five, (laughs) just texting, you know, and talking in Slack, talking in hip chat, whatever else. And, And they will be there all day and they're totally fine doing it. And there are times in the day where 
you know, they are like hitting me with so many questions and so many things and I see it and I'll just get up from my desk and I'll walk over to their desk and they're, and they're still going and I'm like standing behind them watching them, you know, and just kind of tap them on the shoulder and be like, can we just talk about this? Like, <laughs> this is going to be so much faster and easier. And they're like, oh yeah, sorry. And so you kind of, I think you forget people get into those worlds and they, um, kind of you almost have to remind them about human interaction but um it's a weird thing yeah. but I, I don't know if it's generational or what but i think um for me i try to break out of that world whenever i can so please just uh, yell out come up with the arm whenever you have a question and there are no stupid questions there are only the ignorance of not asking questions and i know that i'm a reporter so i do make stupid questions a living um <laughs> so whatever you sort of been um, having of questions for the last day and a half please uh, just uh, come out no one? Um, this is not specifically Todd, but uh, you talked yesterday about the wink. Uh-huh. And just <coughs> oh, the wink and how it was just enough. Um, when is it too much emotion? And um, where do your company see yourselves in like five years from now? Will the emotion be more present or... Yeah. What do you think will happen like with the uh, evolution? I think um, th that's actually a, a, a general problem that we have with the company because the, the company keeps getting bigger. We keep hiring more people. We continue to scale. And so we're starting to do more advertising campaigns, more big media campaigns. And the trick is, like, how do you retain those values and that character that you had that made you special when you were a startup during all these small years? And how do you scale that? And how do you make it um, still relatable? You know, an example that I use a lot, because I, I come from a music background, is, you know, think about bands that successfully made the leap from being, like, a small indie band to suddenly playing stadiums. And, like, you know, I think, like, a band like Radiohead, like, fits that really well. Like, somehow they were able to retain those core values and are still popular uh, just on a mass scale. And so with the wink and like that type of uh, character, it's just something where I have found that we have to have people internally at the company that understand the brand and really understand when too much is too much. They're almost like tastemakers, so to speak. You know, an engineer in the room would be like, well, what do they do all day? <laughs> you know, like, I write code. What does that guy do, you know? And it's like... There are particular people in particular positions in the company that know when too much is, is too much. And they're like, if, if it bends one way too far this way or this way, it could come across as being kind of lame or just being kind of tired or, um, or just, I don't know, I think you see that in a lot of companies like banks, you know, that are trying to be cute, you know, and try to be funny. And it comes across as kind of weird, you know, and he's like, this is my bank, you know, why is my bank talking to me this way? Um, and that's just, that's that taste level. And and so I think that's where the wink comes in. It's We always zero back in on that element. Yeah, and I think... Um It's funny, you know, seeing five years in the future, I, I can't really do it, uh, I don't think, with any accuracy. But I think it's so ingrained at Slack to build software for humans and make it feel human. I mean, there's obviously a fine line. Um, there's a lot of very smart people, you know, focused on voice and tone, and it's very embedded in our design team and our product teams to speak a certain way and know when to not speak that way. 
Um, I'm going to give you a little preview of something from my talk and say that you know there's a very fine line between friendly and annoying, and the thing that pushes us over it is frequency. If I'm getting a bunch of errors, I don't want you to be jovial and like, whoops, sorry about that. Like you're actually ruining my day. It's the time to be serious and like, you know, knowing that line I think is a really important thing, and and it really just takes like an embedded team who truly, like Todd says, like understands the brand, understands the voice and nuance that needs to to go into it to achieve that. I don't have much to add here. <laughs> I will say one thing, though, that uh, that surprisingly enough, Emojipedia, we don't, the website is 100% serious and 100% straight because the first version was kind of humorous and it make a joke about this. It was just me writing it. And I'm like, oh, this is a bit funny. Look at this one. But people use it as a reference. So even though we have fun on the back channels, on Twitter, on Facebook, Emojipedia, 100% straight. It's the it's a boring looking website because people use it as a reference, and mm -hmm. so we, we don't go there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we are the responsible ones, so you guys can have fun. Andrew from Google said yesterday that design should take up as little attention as possible, and and, and I guess that you don't quite agree because I mean. Humor takes up a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. A monkey certainly does. Um, so, so what is the balance between discrete design and, and putting in the tone and voice and personality? Where is the balance between the two? Um, well, like I was saying, I mean, I, th I think it's all about um, just having people who are just really tied in to to the values and understanding. Uh, and are and are aware of when we're going too far. This is this is actually something that I didn't really talk about yesterday. But like when I talked about how we had two different logos for the company and how we had a signature and we had a mascot. And something I've seen over and over again is when we hire junior designers, they come in and they put Freddie on everything. <laughs> and it's because they think that's what they're supposed to do. And it's like, okay, that's cool, but it's kind of like playing the same note over and over again. And we don't want to be Geico. Like we, I don't know if you have Geico here insurance, but with the lizard, you know what I'm talking oh, about. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, like we don't want to just, we don't want it to be so overbearing where Freddie gets old. You know, Freddie is still supposed to be fun and, and kind of like this almost like a treat, you know. I didn't show a picture of it yesterday, but we actually did a campaign where we just bought billboards just all over the com all over the country and we actually did billboards in like small towns where there really were not that many people and honestly we didn't get that much value out of the ad buy. But we put Freddie there. We didn't say MailChimp. We didn't say anything. We just stuck Freddie on a billboard and people loved it. Like people were like, ah, oh, you know, this is amazing. And they felt like we were talking to them. So for me, it's always a balance and it's a constant question I get from designers of like, should I use the word mark or should I use Freddie? And that's a very hard thing uh, to describe when you have these two pieces. I can empathize there for sure. Uh, uh, there is that, that feeling when somebody new starts at Slack and they are aware of the voice, they've seen it executed in these really good ways, but it is really hard to execute. And, and design, I think, should be generally quite transparent. It should seem kind of invisible. Um, it doesn't mean your software can't have personality. Um, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Uh, but in other, you know, to, to empathize with Todd there, it's like, Sometimes you just want to create a feature or a flow that achieves a goal. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be whimsical. It doesn't have to be playful. Yep. It should be thoughtful, um, but it doesn't mean you need to go full bore all the time. It's a, Knowing the time and place, again, uh, is very important. Sure. We, I have a follow-up question I really want to get to, but we'll just go... Right, down the first. Just stop with the follow-up question. Okay, uh, just, just because you just mentioned it, and I'm just curious to, how do you actually, like on a very concrete project, work with 
Humor. I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing is like discussion on taste is really tricky, but there's nothing as tricky as humor. Um, yeah. How I've do you do that? I mean, the designing of humor or tone. I, I've actually done this with a, a couple of projects. Before I worked at Mailchimp, I founded a um, this new network for Turner called Super Deluxe that was connected with Cartoon Network and Adult Swim, and we had a similar thing where, and this is we still do this at Mailchimp actually, where we basically get a spreadsheet and we just write the copy. It was like, if I was a business person writing this, let's just do it just vanilla, boring. And we put it all into a spreadsheet and we just list everything. And there's particular people in the company that I can share that spreadsheet with. And I'd be like, just do your thing. Like, <laughs> make this magical, make this relatable, make this human, make this, you know, humorous and fun. And they go away and they come back and they'll do their versions to the right of it. And then we adjust it from there. But you have to start with something like, you know, like if you were just a, a normal business, what would you write? And then you just have to find ways to subtly tweak it. It's like a punch-up, you know, when they get mm-hmm. comedy writers to punch up scripts. Exactly. To basically be like, this is a little too boring. I need you to inject a little bit here because the audience is going to be seeing a little bit of a dead zone for this yeah. next one, 20 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, we have product writers too, actually, at Slack. That uh, is a what? product writers. Um, mm-hmm. It's a growing team. Um, essentially, it used to be uh, focused pretty much. The product design team would be doing the writing. We'd have design reviews, and we would be so stringent. We'd talk more about the language that we were using, whether humor was correct, whether like you know playfulness was correct in this context, more so than we'd talk about the UI in a lot of cases, mm-hmm. um, which I think was the biggest eye opener for me working at Slack. Um, but I'm sorry, I'm kind of losing the plot of the question. <laughs> was, it was the designing of humor. How do you work with how, how you actually could yeah. work with that carefully? I think is the answer. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. On your tiptoes, I think. Again, this it's it's working with a product designer, working with a product writer now, which we're lucky enough to have. Um, they are very good at reeling us in. It's like a little bit of push and pull, um, yeah. but it's a very iterative process. Um, you know, you can spend weeks on getting the the, uh, the writing just right. So be, you both work at international companies, and, 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 and one thing is taste in Finland and, and in yes. Atlanta, yes. but, but humor time. in yes. Finland and Atlanta. Big time. Yes, that's, that is a real problem we, we've run into yeah. before, where um, I think especially in England for some reason, I don't think they really <laughs> jive. I think we're like, oh, it's just like that stupid monkey, you know? Like they don't, <laughs> I don't know what it is. No fun. Um, <laughs> like like one, one additional point I'd like to make is like one of my favorite things to see on my team is um, when we are doing prototypes and we're designing ideas for features, I encourage all of the designers to write their own copy. Mm-hmm. You know, like, don't do lorem ipsum. You know, everybody does lorem ipsum. Don't even use a lorem ipsum generator. Like, act as if you are the brand and the voice and actually come up with your own labels and your own titles and your own copy. And every now and then, they'll strike on something just magical. And we'll run it. Like, we have product writers. We have uh, writers on the marketing team, too. And we'll run it by them, and they'll be like, I don't need to change a thing. Like, this is great. And they might tweak a couple of things. So I love it whenever copy gets into our app that was actually made by a designer um, and uh, it was not actually written by someone else. That's always fun to see. Cool. Mm-hmm. It seems like that both uh, Slack and, and uh, MailChimp have really great cultures that really shine through in your brand. How do you keep that culture alive, and how do you pass it on to new employees you want to start? I can start, I guess, yeah. That's a tough question, um, and I totally agree. I, I I will say the culture at Slack is one that is welcoming, it's transparent, it's 
just like lovely to work there. Um, you know, obviously the core few that started, um, and you know, as the company grows, you, you have these pockets. The design team itself was, you know, quite small up until recently. There's a lot of baked in, you know, institutional knowledge there. Um, but more than anything, I, I think it's just actually, living by the values that you actually portray as your company values. Um, it's a lot harder to say than, or sorry, a lot harder to do than to say. Um, you know, there's likely some very large conglomerates that have, you know, uh, empathy massively printed on a wall somewhere, and whenever anybody walks by it, they kind of like scoff mm-hmm. and, you know, don't really believe it. Um, but I think, you know, when you track really well to your values and you actually live by them, it's it's pretty easy for it to permeate uh, as you grow as a company. You know, we have a lot of smart people who think about how we're going to scale because, you know, we are rapidly growing and that's, that's always generally a concern. Um, but uh, so far, so good. I think what we have noticed uh, at MailChimp is that um, anyone that's new, it generally takes them about a year <laughs> to understand what is going on because they come into the environment and they think they know what they're getting into and they think they know what the relationships are like and you just don't and it it takes months and months and months i sometimes refer to it as it's almost like an oral history of sorts like we don't really have a mechanism or a book that we hand somebody and say this is the culture or like there's nothing like that and and perhaps we should create something like that but i don't even know what would go in it i mean it's it's just something you have to kind of live in for a while and understand it's almost like moving to a different country and it just takes you some time so that's really the hardest thing it's really an oral history and i think it helps having people in um particular positions like as a manager or a director that are able to uh, pass that message along in newspapers, you say it's in the walls, so you get in there and you feel it, and, and yeah. there's no real way to put it in to document it yeah. and put it down anywhere. Yeah. yeah. There was a question back there. Thanks. <clears throat> um, you touched a bit on this yesterday about changing your tone of voice depending on an action that the user is taking. Yeah. But have you investigated or have any thoughts on how you might use machine learning or artificial intelligence to then change the way you respond? Uh, I think it's interesting because there has been a lot of press and a lot of attention recently on bots and on automating that process somehow. And this is actually something that I've been interested in and I've been talking to people internally about at MailChimp because I feel like we have been doing voice and tone for so long and we've been in this game of of thinking about how we communicate with people and making it a more personal experience that of all companies that hopefully we should be able to do it well and we should be able to autom- you know make this automatic somehow and turn it into some type of chatbot or whatever it is. I, I don't know. I'm not even sure what the application is. Um, but everyone seems to want to do it for some reason. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, we, we researched it. I mean, I actually had an intern um, this past summer work on some things in that regard and I think for us we've yet to find like a really solid use case for it um, there's still something about uh, having that that human centered kind of like hand and voice in there crafting the message as opposed to turning it into a machine based system um, I'm, I'm intrigued by it I would love to find ways to 
make it happen. I was actually having a discussion last night over dinner, as a matter of fact, about <laughs> something to this degree with a lot of the folks yesterday that spoke about the future of, you know, generative design or um, even Andrew's talk about, you know, creating something that doesn't exist yet. We're just like, we're postulating what could possibly be done with, you know, we start talking about like, oh, maybe designers are going to be losing their jobs because X or Y exists. But then what we started to really talk about was like, well, what about A-B testing? What about A-B-C-D-E, whatever, like, you know, A to X testing? What would happen if, you know, you could actually generate, you know, based off of a certain amount of variance, either language or design compositions, something that would just like test, 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 and then all of a sudden like cut down the bottom 10%, only present these designs, start like actually working them into these sort of uh, different layers and shapes. And you could surely do that with language. I am certainly not smart enough to do that. Um, but I, I could see it as a possibility um, and really tuning the language. And who knows, especially in international markets, that could be something really useful to understand what works, mm -hmm. what doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't be the one to write it, but somebody smart could, I'm sure. Could you say also that last maybe 10, 15 years, we spent so much time doing personalized technology that is almost this whole discussion we're having here is also sort of just going the opposite direction. Instead of personalized, you're going personality. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's too very, like, as opposed to getting on a platform that's just always reflecting yourself. All of a sudden, there is someone out there that you actually meet. There's, it's not just a platform that reflects yourself. There's, a, there's an actual personality in the other end. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Scary. We have uh, we, <laughs> we launched a, a bot for Emojipedia called Botmoji, and people can ask it emoji questions. <laughs> and it's it's a really it's a really simple implementation. You send any emoji, it will tell you what it is. But it's amazing how much you give it a name and a face, and so it's called Botmoji. Technically, she's female. There's nothing about it. We just call her her. Um, But people argue with her all the time. <laughs> they'll say, yeah. what is this emoji? Yeah. And she'll say, oh, it's the, it's the smirking face. And they'll go, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's amazing that as soon as you add a bit of personality to anything, suddenly it takes on a life of its own. Nobody argues with our Emojipedia account with a human there, but yeah. it's a bot with a personality and sometimes she might give a sassy response or she might shut somebody down. And yeah, they'll just argue with her even though she clearly only has about 10 things to say. But it's, it's, it's just, amusing that you put the face on it. Similar to Slackbot, I think. You yeah. have like proposals uh, like, I can't remember what the number is right now, of like wedding proposals or <laughs> engagement proposals to Slackbot and it's up in the hundreds for sure. Yeah, I mean, Slackbot, I'd propose to Slackbot. Yeah, me too. Maybe it was me. Slackbot's chill. Yeah. yeah. We have a question back there. I found found it interesting that you never thought about multiracial uh, emojis. Um, what do you think is the future of emojis? Are we going to get so many that we don't know what to do with them anyway? Or because there's so many different races, there's so many different cultures, there's so many backgrounds. When is enough enough on the emoji? Yeah, it's an impossible question. Hey, um, so I mean, right now the. The goals of Unicode generally are about ticking off the biggest chunks first. So race was a huge one, especially because people were white. If they were just all yellow, then maybe we could just say there never was race in emoji. Let's not introduce something new. But it was... Like the Simpsons or something. Yeah. yeah. Even though there's, all, there's still a, an ongoing sort of debate, is yellow uh, um, a version of white or is yellow really non-racial? But nonetheless, it's too late. Emoji's got itself in a big hole, but it started out with genders and with skin tones and we're slowly digging out. So yeah, we got the skin tones. This year was gender. And probably the next big thing is like the, these cultural aspects that, yeah, there are foods in every country around the world. And mm -hmm. if you add everything, it's ridiculous. You're going to have this giant keyboard. So I don't know where the line is, but 
To me, it seems clear that some of the benefit of emoji is that it is a limited set. But I don't want to be the person that says, that's it. I don't want to be the guy that says, no more, guys. We've done it. We're finished. So I don't envy the person whose job that is <laughs> because inevitably someone's going to miss out. So, so far to answer the question, though, just every year chipping away at new things and hoping that it covers a greater and greater percent until we're just left with fringe items. Okay. Anyone else? By the way, now we just had the race issue up. Then there, if you notice that as with any um, panel on a technology conference, there's all men up here. So if there's a woman with two questions that are common, please come up here and take a seat. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I have a question for Jeremy. Uh, first of all, a great talk. Great talk. <clears throat> Um, um, I want to know if you see any disadvantages of emojis because um, some well-known German uh, graphic designers or typographers like Erich Spiekermann uh, also criticize the development in the use of emojis. So we forget our language and forget how to speak. And uh, also uh, a topic uh, a couple of minutes ago was like how do employees speak at the, at the uh, employee or with other colleagues and something like that and uh, yeah I want to know your opinion on that right um, I think it's pretty clear that emoji is a shorthand it's definitely it's an abbreviation it's, it's something that we can use in general for communication for quicker communications and what Instagram looked at last year when they were analyzing all their emoji data is that it wasn't replacing real words it was replacing internet speak people were using less lol and they were putting in laughing face. So at least as far as the stats that I can see seem to back up that it's, if anything, it's removing the last scourge, the last generation when I was growing up to be in the newspaper. What do these terrible acronyms mean? What are the teens saying? And it's replacing more of that. But you can't hold it back. People are going to do what they want to do. You know, you don't, don't tell people what to do. If people want to use emojis, they can. If, if a workplace or if a person finds that offensive or if they don't want to do that, then that's up to them, but it's not like schools are teaching how to use emojis. That, you know, I think it's probably a bit overblown to say, not that you're saying that, but if that's the argument that emoji is somehow ruining language, then I think language has bigger issues to think about. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is that, is that the, the grain of... Yeah, yeah, great. But just like, you, you had the Hillary thing in your, just before, and, and it's, it's weird that there's... I think what emojis does, and I think there's nothing surprising in, in people having personality, but it's, it's strange that a newsletter company yeah. all of a sudden has a personality. So there are certain expectations that we have to who's stiff, who's supposed to be boring, who has certain attitudes. Yeah. And I think that's also what happens with emojis, that you have certain idea of formality that you sort of transcend somehow. They're definitely on the casual side of communication. If yes. you feel like you can communicate with somebody casually, Tick. Emojis are fine. If you're professional, probably know if you're in a staid, strict environment. It's just the middle bit, and everybody's line is obviously going to be different. Me, I don't care. I'll chuck emojis in anything. But the <laughs> people with real jobs, then, yeah, there is, a, there is a line somewhere, and I guess it's up to each company, each person, each country to decide where that line is. But this, this may be kind of a, a, a cold way of looking at it, but uh, from a business perspective, there is real... Uh, return on investment from using them because uh, MailChimp supports emoji and 
uh, subject lines. It was something we added, um, I think, about a year and a half ago now. And we've studied it, and we have a data science team that has actually been tracking, you know, what are the most popular ones that people use? What are the click rates? What are the open rates? How does this affect how well your newsletter and your marketing performs? And we have found that they actually do work. I mean, they really convert. I mean, people put them in subject lines, regardless of what you feel about them. For whatever reason, seeing an emoji in an inbox makes people more inclined to tap on it and to look at that email and to take action on it. So there is actually, like, regardless of your feelings, there's real data that suggests that you could probably sell more products or you could maybe do more with your uh, marketing and your email marketing specifically by using them. But couldn't that change real fast? I mean, the, yeah. the, the media company I work for use emojis every single day when we send out our MailChimp newsletter. Um, but it works now because you don't expect to see that from a news outlet. Yeah. But it, and, and you kind of get a feel when you see it. This might be from my teenage daughter or something like that, yeah. right? Text message. And that's why you open it. So at some yeah. point when it does become sort of corporate language, it might not work in the same way. Yeah. It, it's hard when, when, when you are the company that is trying to democratize something that like some other marketing genius found to be true. Like they found the secret sauce to something and we're like, oh, we're going to democratize that and we're going to give that to everybody. And then you do it and you ruin it almost because, I mean, like another example would be uh, we have scheduling in our app where you can actually send an email at a particular time on a particular day and we'll, we'll tell you when is the optimum time to be doing this? Mm. And the problem is, is that sometimes that optimum time is the optimum time for a number of other people too. So <laughs> everyone kind of follows the same logic. And so some people we've watched uh, are interesting. Like they'll actually do the opposite of like what we're recommending <laughs> to see if their conversion is better. Um, but it's, it's yeah, it's interesting because it's like, yes, too much could totally be too much. It's like driving with uh, Google Maps when the, who all reroutes. You have another small trip because it's fast. Right, and then everybody no yeah, exactly. Uh, I want to go just back for one second and, and talk about the casualness of emoji, just because it, it rung in my mind for a second. I agree that in communication, it is definitely further on the, the, the casual scale. I think there's an interesting business case that we see pretty often in our actual Slack team. Uh, we use emojis for triage or for like marking GitHub pull requests as like I'm looking at it or I'm done and we're using it in very official ways but we're using it with like reactions which we allow you to react with any emoji. So it would be like you know red light, green light or eyes. You know what I mean? So there is like that other side right. where it's like sure it's shorthand but it doesn't have to be casual either. Yeah, it's got a technical advantage but it is everywhere that text is yeah. and you're right, the, the you can use it however you want to yeah. use it. It's, why is it any better than a letter or a, a punctuation yeah. if you use it in that context? Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I kind of want to send you three guys out next door and do a little 10-minute workshop, come up with a subject line with emoji <laughs> for Deutsche Bank or something. <laughs> but before we do that, we'll just have a question back there. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to say, Todd, I thought it was really interesting um, yesterday when you were talking about how you built empathy mm -hmm. by setting up a, an actual store. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Um, and I wondered if, Brandon, if you guys have done any sort of crazy experimental type things for building empathy with Slack, or do you just primarily rely on your own sort of usage of the tool? No, I mean, we are as empathetic as we possibly can be and are always seeking ways to empathize with our users and customers. Um, you know, I think one thing that's really key um, 
just day to day, and we've done this since the beginning, is that everybody does support. Um, which means that whether you're me or you're a designer or you're an engineer or a product manager, you spend time in Zendesk seeing what people are having trouble with. I mean, there is something amazingly humble, humbling about it because you're like, oh, yeah, no, that was an obvious design. We shipped it. No big deal. You get 200 tickets about it the next day, and you realize that your bias is what made it look really simple. Um, so I think that's like – it's not – crazy and we're not the only folks who do it. Uh, we don't go too wild with, with that. I, we haven't built a store and I don't know, I didn't get to hear your talk so I'm not exactly sure what that is, but I've heard of like, you know, user experience experiments where somebody will build an actual, you know, uh, storefront or, you know, a place that you can experience to see how you feel. Mm -hmm. um, but other than that, you know, we, we just listen really intently. Uh, we do a lot of, you know, user research and interviews like that to, to see how people really use the product um, and, and that really, I think, raises our empathy bar. Yeah, we actually do the same thing at MailChimp. I'm, I'm actually, uh, as far as support goes, because um, before I worked at MailChimp, um, I used to run my own company, and I would do support, like at night, with a laptop, you know, like sitting in bed or something, and I did it every single day. <laughs> and I just, it, it's it's just such a part of me, and it's something that I'm always working with our support team. I mean, because we have hundreds of people in support, you know, 24-7 that are doing it. And... It's something that I work with the designers on to try to get them exposed to the problems that people are having so we're not so siloed. Mm -hmm. We actually have an internal app in the company where you can go at any particular time, any like you're eating lunch, whatever, and you can just type in something like product recommendations or abandoned cart or campaigns or whatever, and you can go through everything and like get like the fire hose of like what <laughs> everyone is saying and like griping about. And it's amazing, it's cathartic. Yeah. I mean it's and it's hard to do when you're a, a big company and you don't have so much of that exposure with people on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, talking about tone, uh, how would you uh, recommend transitioning to a more lighter tone in an application? Should you come up with a completely new um, texting way in the pop-ups or should you transition slowly? That's a good question. you want to go? Um, I'll start just by saying that my first suggestion would be to make sure that the, that the lighter tone is appropriate for your audience and for the application that you are designing because I, I think that may be like a, a, a sub-message in this theme that is not described is that or has not been articulated too much is that fun and friendly and casual may not work for everyone and may not be completely appropriate and it all depends on the context of your business and what you're doing um, because it, it could it could completely backfire and it may not work if it works though and you find that that's what people want and that's what people are engaging with um, I think it really comes down to copywriting. I think you just have to really sit down and put yourself in the mind of a character and think about how you interact, you know, with friends of yours or how you would speak this in a non-corporate way. I, I, I kind of think a lot of us, you know, we go through school, we join companies, we try to be professional and we change the way that we speak. And I think you almost have to unlearn some of that. Um, I, that would be my suggestion. I would also suggest testing, like A-B testing your language. Mm -hmm. um, just getting a feel for what is kind of, you know, okay to interact with or what people are interacting or not interacting with. Um, yeah. It's a good barrier. I used to be a newspaper where, where, where the entire, all the journalists came together every morning and had a long discussion. And we were famous for having very long discussions in the morning, very, very long morning meetings. But the fun thing was that you could have a heated debate, a discussion, and it was really sort of whatever, you know, cartoons, whatever was on, on the subject, and we'd be yelling at each other for an hour and a half, 
And then next morning you saw the newspaper and it came out in that weird newspaper speak and it was boring and it looked like something from, a, from you know, someone else could have done. There was no, yeah. the fire was gone. And there's something in that transformation from like initial discussion, idea, to that actually sort of, you know, very sort of... Uh, it- yeah, it sounds like design by committee. Exactly. It's the same concept of where you, the final design is oftentimes so watered down when you have too many designers collaborating on it. Yeah, that and also there's something in, in, in the newspaper language, specifically in that design, mm-hmm. in the way that the tone over years have been designed, that it's very sort of formal. And by that, loses that immediate and, and vibrant feeling. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Any questions? Yeah, uh, so I'm just wondering... Uh, Wow, that's not <laughs> uh, how you work over time with, with your tone of voice. You mentioned A-B testing, uh, and you see what, what works for your company, what doesn't work, what people pick up on. But I guess over time, if, you, if you've got that quirkiness or the tongue-in-cheek approach, couldn't that also get really old? Much like you're saying about, about the emojis, maybe it's hard because no one uses it. Then whenever one uses it, it it's, it's lost its novelty. How, how do you work with that over time? I think A-B testing usually has a uh, sort of a short-sightedness for built sure. into it. Yeah. Um, like anything, like anything in design, um, a part of a product like that will evolve over time. I think things like that will generally get stale over a longer period. Um, but if you're paying quite like a lot of attention to it and you have a team that's thinking about it, you kind of just like ebb and flow with how to change it, how to reshift, how to refocus, um, ensuring that you're still keeping your personality, but maybe like updating some of your language or the ways that you communicate. I think it's just like revising designs or, you know, updating a whatever, a modal or something. You know, it does get a little stale. Maybe it doesn't work as well as you wanted to. You do a quick design pass um, and you know, lo and behold, it, it actually works really well again. Um, but isn't it a good question, though, that all of a sudden, you, without you realizing, you do become that weird uncle at the family party? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a valid concern. Um, or, you know, at the same time, like we're talking about once, you know, the voice and tone thing, um, if things lighten up just generally quite a lot, it, we could start seeing it being a lot more obvious or everywhere, in which case you are no longer individual, you are very much like these, you know, the sum of these parts over here. Um, it's just something to watch, you know. We, we, we do this all the time with design. I think we should be pretty willing to do it with language. Yeah, I have the mic. Um, for <laughs> Jeremy, um, how do you make money on Emotive? That's a good question. <laughs> I'm guessing it's no longer like a passion project, or it is, but I'm guessing you're doing it full-time, and how does that work for you? Yeah. And uh, when when did you go full time? Right, so um, model. yeah, great. Uh, <laughs> I like it straight to the point. Um, you're right. It is it is my full time employment now, and there's five of us in total. No one full time. I was very dedicated to not make anybody full time. Everyone that works for the site, they have other projects. Our designer does other things. Our developer just. It doesn't need five people full-time, but it helps to have a variety of different people involved. Uh, the short answer is advertising. We have 15 million page views a month, and advertising pays terribly. <laughs> but if you get 15 million people, it adds up, is, is the, the extent of it. But in the early days, I literally remember the first few months of Emojipedia. I'd, I'd watch the ad revenue every day, and it would be one cent would literally be the ad revenue. And I'd be like, and then I doubled it to two cents a day. I'm like, yes! <laughs> 100%. <laughs> like, that is amazing. What happens if I could get this up to sort of 10 or $20 a day? And it did, and it just kept going. And 
now obviously there's more overheads of servers and keeping something up for 15 million people, but that's the short answer. We don't really have products. We, we are a, a weird hybrid of a tool. A lot of people just use Emojipedia as an emoji search tool, like a web app, and a lot of other people use it like Wikipedia as research. Humor, people just, I see a lot of people got a random emoji button on the site and some users you can track in the analytics are just there for hours and hours just <laughs> going through every emoji because they all have a backstory. Every emoji, some of them don't have much, but some of them, there's the, the guy, the man in business suit levitating. You've seen this guy, he's got a shadow beneath him and he, to cut a long story short, but he was included in Windings and Webdings at Microsoft because one of the designers there liked this Scar Band and he was on the cover of the Scar Band. Mm-hmm. And Unicode added a bunch of Webdings and Windings characters so he became an emoji. So there's a lot of these characters that have quite a long history of documentation and people just find it amusing. But to answer the question, advertising is how we make money and effectively, therefore, we have a publisher model that more page views mean more, adverti- more, more money. You guys are in a good business when you're at newspaper conferences. Business model is the first question, always. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This is at MailChimp. Can you talk a little about your merchandising? I know it's not merchandising in the sense that you sell it, but what does it do for you and what's good about it? Um, We actually have this, well... (laughs) <laughs> That's the only reason he asked the question. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so there's actually some philosophy behind it. Um, we, I mean, we used to attend conferences, you know, a lot, like you know everyone else, and we would oftentimes go and, and see. We wouldn't have booths there. I mean, I don't know why. It's just something culturally we just never felt inclined to do. And we would go and we would see like all the other things that companies would make and they would and they would do. And we kind of felt like, in a way, that if we were going to do this, we wanted it to be something that people really loved and they wanted to keep and they wanted to maybe put on their desk or they were like, they were, you know, they'd wear it, like they'd really actually want to wear the t-shirt, like out and around, or they'd want the Freddy on their desk. And so we just decided that if we were going to do this, we were really going to invest in it and we weren't going to do it cheap. Uh, we wanted it to be valuable. Uh, I mean, like these final Freddies, I mean, we like, we get nothing from them. Um, but they're so fun and people find such delight, uh, out of them. They're obviously very expensive, but that's where that comes from. I think it's also tricky for us because we can't really, it, it's like a business accounting tax thing, but we are not product people like outside of software so we can't really people oftentimes ask us why don't we sell t-shirts and stuff and it's just it just doesn't jive with what we do so anytime we do it and sell stuff we always give all the money away to uh, charities okay anyone else hi um, so as designers, uh, there is uh, a lot of taste involved, and when you when you create something and show it to people, they might not agree with you. Yeah. Have it, Have you ever had really horrible feedback, and how did you uh, <laughs> tackle it? <laughs> oh boy, that's a good question. Good question. I, I'm actually trying to think of a good example of when. I don't yeah. know of anyone just right now. Off the you mean like myself, per, like like personally speaking, or like anyone, or? Yeah. 
Um, well, I have had creative directors tell me that like that my work sucked and that it was horrible. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've had that experience. I think everyone has at some point in their oh, career. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's so much sub- subjectivity in design yeah. um, that I think the first thing you need you learn at least after getting your work ripped apart over and over again um, is that. <laughs> that's valuable, and maybe you should consider those opinions. Um, but you know, you just have to roll with it. You know, you, if you trust your intuition, and you're, you know, at least willing to grow, uh, I think you're going to be okay. I don't know. I've never really like. It's definitely yeah. been like a few dark evenings, just like really questioning whether I was yeah. a designer or not. Um, yeah. <laughs> but you know, you get around to it. Yeah. Figure it out. I mean, it's something you learn because I mean, I know from past like. I'm now in a position where now I'm coaching and I'm trying to lead people. And, like, one of my biggest jobs, really, at the end of the day, is to make the designers better. I'm trying to make them better designers. I'm trying to help them not just think about interface and not just think about the shade of a button or whether this should have a drop shadow or not or anything like that. It's all about having training them to think more laterally, horizontally across the entire experience, like I was talking about yesterday. Changing, like, I actually did this when um, recently where uh, everyone was called UI designers before. Like, we were actually segmented into teams of, like, UX and UI, which sounds very clean and nice and everything. But then it just makes it sound like the designers, all they care about is what the interface looks like. And it's by no means just that. So we we got rid of it all, and now everyone is just product designers. Because I want them to focus on the product and to be thinking about the entirety of it and what their contribution is. Um, so yeah, that was a rambly answer, but that's what I work on. That's I think that's important too. I, I think it's also I want to circle back and say like what's made me grow the most in my career is bad feedback or feedback, yeah. especially when it was warranted. And I think yeah. a lot of it ties into as you're growing as a product designer. You know, I worked at an agency that was very focused on like the polish. You know, especially in the early mid 2000s, where it's like. Um, you know, a lot of drop shadows, a lot of 10-stop gradients on buttons, like all that really like finicky shit that mm-hmm. doesn't really matter to anybody but the designer doing it. And I think like getting broken out of that cycle was, you know, it came through a lot of feedback. It came through a lot of like growth, but it was always bad feedback that got me out of that and got me thinking like a product person. Um, so yeah. yeah, I think that's... Could I just hold you onto that polished thing there? I mean, it's interesting because we're talking, this discussion is very much about how to engage users, basically, engage in a conversation, but what we're talking about mostly is attitude, boorish tone, and less about design. Mm-hmm. And is there something, I'm just thinking from, from my business, where in news, like the way Huffington Post, a boss feed is almost undesigned and looks like HTML from the 90s. <laughs> There's something in that very unpolished that's open for engaging. It's, it's, yeah. it's not, it doesn't have that thing very polished and closed yeah yeah i mean some people say that like the drudge report is the best design news site on the internet yeah, yeah. i don't know if y'all know what that site is yeah. but yeah there's definitely something there. so there's something about design getting in the way also also absolutely oh, yeah. yeah oh i mean you know so when i worked at uh, i'll give a little story but when i worked at that agency before i worked at slack uh, it was an agency called metal lab and um you know we one of the things that we were good at was bringing a lot of polish to the product stuff. Um, not to say that it got in the way, um, but there was definitely like this push or this pull to be like, you, especially when working on Slack, for example, you want people to feel comfortable spending all day in this thing. Um, designers love very simple, minimal, stripped down, like 
RDO when Wilson Minor designed it type work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I agree, it was absolutely beautiful. They did have a lot of album art to sort of flesh it out. But, you know, we see that and we like it aesthetically, so we imitate. That doesn't necessarily feel comfortable to, you know, a million people. In fact, software that is represented that way, so polished, so like every little detail thought out, often can feel like a little too austere or a little too finicky and they don't want to really touch it or spend much time in it or it feels confusing. So I think like an important part of understanding where polish can come in because I think it is very important still, um, but it's just getting in that mind frame that we as designers have a bias, like a massive bias because we have spent all our years pulling in patterns, pulling in like aesthetics and really trying to like execute on those and you lose a lot of what the first eyes look like when you do that and I think it's important to be able to uh, articulate as well a little with a little bit less polish it's also what emojis does I mean they, they're just breaking that polish they don't fit in in any design yeah, yeah. They're, they're their own thing and you know what the what we get the most passionate responses about is when we design our own version of the next set of emojis and people get very very involved we had the this year there's an emoji called the shallow pan of food but it's effectively a paella from spain and i was getting death threats over how we designed that based on the ingredients <laughs> of people in spain were <laughs> saying i will see you burning in hell for the ingredients that we put in there because it's something they cared about yeah. um, and but And overwhelmingly, no matter what we do, it's that one. When people see, here's a name and here's how you drew it, yeah, they, they care. People get... Whew. I think we're going to get a last round of questions, and it might be a lot of questions, and that's fine. It doesn't matter. Final <laughs> round could be a long round. It's okay. Uh, just don't don't hold back now, because then you'll uh, sit back with questions you didn't never had the chance to get an answer for. And we're here all day, too, so yeah, yeah. feel free <laughs> yeah. to come up and talk. So. Well, I'm talk to do. Just, <laughs> going back, <laughs> just going back to the question of um, emojis in connection with language and communication. I'm, I'm a late adopter of emojis. I use, you know, the, the, the pretty basic vocabulary. I have a vocabulary about, you know, a, a young child. But also I have people in my uh, on my Twitter feeds, uh, etc., that are doing some really, really expressive stuff with emojis. So do you think as we as cultures and subcultures actually master the vocabulary and, you know, start expressing more complex thoughts that you are going to get a more, you know, almost poetic Uh, side to the emoji use uh, is that something you're th- you're considering and, and and thinking about at emojipedia it definitely is i mean that's we look at the two parts in a way we don't distinguish on the site but effectively we'll try and describe here's what it was meant to be about and here's how people use it and it happens in different geographies though that different countries pick up their own alternative meanings i don't think there's ever going to be a universal hey we think this this nail polish emoji people use that for sort of nonchalance in the u.s in particular kind of like bit uh i just owned you with, <laughs> with what i just said but th- but that's not universal that doesn't happen in other countries so we try and list what's going on and we're trying to do a bit more crowdsourcing as well to try and pick up let other people submit what, what how they use it right now it's editorial i literally make the decisions about what i think is representative but yeah it, it's fun I, the another one you've i've seen creeping up is the kermit with the with the sipping the tea it's a meme that you know it mm-hmm. says, but that's none of my business uh-huh. people do it in emoji form with the frog and the teacup <laughs> so so there's fun yeah there's absolutely room for creativity poetry there's all that And I think there's infinite amount of time that we can't document it all. Hopefully we can get a bit more crowdsourcing going on because that's just going to go on forever. There's always going to be new meanings for that. And that's the fun. That's what people like about it. Emoji's fun. 
Um, I have one question for the future of emojis. So, for example, Skype and Facebook, they have some animations. Um, and I noticed that uh, the emojis are fixed images, and they they are designed in a re really reduced scale. So now, for example, what, um, uh, WhatsApp have the emojis a little bigger for the user to see it better. Are you planning to make animations with emojis? Uh, so, technically, emojis are fonts, really. You could have different emoji fonts on my own computer. I've got the Apple emoji font, and I've got a black and white emoji font, and you can't really change it on mobile, but technically, in future, there's nothing stopping someone coming up with some kind of animated font technology. I mean, it could be done, or you could just have on the web, or Slack, or MailChimp, or someone could on the web replace, when you see this character, we're going to show this animation. So it could technically be done today. It's just... Who want, it, they've sort of got the gatekeepers of who's Apple. Who's going to go first? Yeah, who's going to do it first? Is it going to make people mad? Uh, I suspect a lot of people are going to get very annoyed. It would have to be, in my mind, an extra an extra thing, that if, or just a fun service that does it. But I can't imagine the actual keyboard. Imagine if they're all dancing when oh, you're going yeah. through the keyboard and they're all jumping around. Uh, that would be... It'd be like the early web again. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I don't know. So I, I don't expect it, but it technically is possible. So we, we, we might... Um, I've got a question for MailChimp, mm -hmm. actually. Um, what do you see the future for newsletters? Because with the communication changing to using more emojis and people using Facebook with shorter texts, as well as Twitter with 140 characters, mm -hmm. what's the future for newsletters that used to be very content-heavy? Will they be slimmed down, or what do you think? Email is a funny thing because um, it's it's very much dependent on compatibility and on what um, on what email clients can support. So you know you can send an email and it can appear in Gmail or Outlook or Mail or you know your mobile client. There, there's just so many different ways for it to appear. So in some ways, the potential and the possibilities of what we can do with the design of an email is limited by the output of where it appears on the client side. Um, that said, I think future-based, um, we're starting to see more emails that are starting to incorporate things like web fonts in them. Uh, we're starting to see people do more like web page style designs where they have almost like fluid images that extend all the way across instead of everything always being 600 pixels wide all the time. Uh, which I think is really exciting. We have, we've seen a number of people create uh, email newsletters that when you actually open it in a browser, like if you go to the campaign archive and look at it, it actually looks like a web page. Uh, it's just in your email client, it's been so perfectly designed to be responsive and scaled down so well. Um, so we're keeping an eye on those things. We're waiting for, for browser, not browser, but email client compatibility to improve. Uh, Gmail is improving. Outlook is improving. Gmail just announced the other day, actually, that they're starting to support media queries now uh, in their code, which is amazing. And, like, we've been wanting that for so long because <laughs> the vast majority of people now actually read email on their mobile devices. They're not doing it on laptops and desktops anymore. So it's super important. But, but but there's a more radicalized version of the question. Are you, I mean, uh, are the most friendly mm -hmm. company on the internet in trouble? I mean, yeah. mail uses changing with generations. Yeah, I think yeah. I mean, it's something that uh, when we're thinking about you know the future growth of the company and where we're going, I think kind of a nice way to think about it is to kind of remove 
you know, we're an email marketing company, but if you really drill into what that means, the, the higher version of that is we're a marketing company, and email is the medium that we use and, and is what we were founded on. Our mission and our values are still the same, which is to help people grow their business, help them communicate, help them market their products. And whether it's email or anything else is, you know, we don't – it's not something that um, – that we're so committed to that we're going to, you know, go down with the ship if email, like, someday, someday <laughs> dies or something. It's not like that at all. Our heart and our soul is still in marketing and help people uh, look pro and to grow in what they do. So we could take a number of different avenues in the future. Um, we've been talking a lot about fun and uh, funny experiences. Um, have you ever thought about using different kinds of emotions than... For example, angry people or <laughs> sadness. <laughs> sadness in your communication. It's that's funny, by the way. <laughs> you idiot. <laughs> Pretty much. Impression, yeah. <laughs> Just click the damn button. <laughs> um, I've always wanted to write that in a UI. Just wasn't it there? I like, feel like Trello did that recently, where it's like, yeah. There was a button, and it's like if you clicked anywhere outside of it, it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> and then once you examine that, it's just like an arrow points to it, and it's like, you have to be kidding me. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. Um, I, I guess to your point, it's kind of a brand question, too. I mean, that was one of the things we discussed when we standardized on the Wink. It was like, well, what if we're sponsoring an event or sponsoring something that's actually kind of a serious topic and you have this winking monkey? You know, that's not very cool. So, I mean, that's kind of like the places where we do rely on the secondary mark we have, which is the script mark. And um, so, yeah, that's something we, we try to be sensitive to for sure. I was thinking about banks as well. I mean, what kind of feelings do they want to invoke? Yeah. In the, in the Comfort, security. Yeah, yeah availability. Yeah, availability, like generally just structural integrity, mm -hmm. um, not playfulness. And, hey, you kind of went over your balance last month. No biggie, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is why a lot of bank logos tend to be like these geometric interlocking shapes totally. stuff, right? I mean, yeah. they're supposed to feel like they're tight and they're well made and they're solid and your money isn't going anywhere so like Chase Bank and people like that yeah, yeah. for sure uh, yeah uh, a while back you, you, you mentioned that the uh, sin that we all committed like 10 years ago was having uh, having uh, having these uh, very uh, over designed drop uh, shadows <laughs> What would you say are what would you say are some of the common uh, sins that the the designers commit n uh, n nowadays? Where ten years in the future we will look back and say, <laughs> "Oh, we we shouldn't have." Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. that's a really good question. I. Uh, I might step on toes, but <laughs> sorry. I think no, no. It's good. I think that like um, animation. Um, you know, it definitely was like a crux because once we all went flat design, people were like, well, it's got no personality anymore and therefore we need to start like using After Effects to make these incredibly elaborate animations that are not really friendly for any like accessibility reasons, but also like over the top and kind of getting past the point of the design. I think over embellishing on that sort of like motion design um, and a lot of like over the top materiality um, is 
kind of, they kind of run in the same vein. Um, that's, that's it for me. Um, or maybe just like, I don't know. It, it's been pretty hard for folks to break out of the, um, and it was interesting to talk today about the logos and how it all looked like the periodic table of elements on, on our iPhones. Um, I think shortening your iPhone application icon to a letter and a color, um, we'll definitely look back on and be like, <laughs> Bad time. <laughs> <laughs> One design trend that I see that is um, really, really hard to do well is like I'm seeing a lot of designers now that are taking typography and running it over bitmap images so that when you scroll a page, it's like the type is still on top of what's happening underneath it, and it's almost like in intentionally done. It's a very stylistic choice. The problem is, is that when that's converted into other languages, the words sometimes get bigger, they sometimes get smaller, and sometimes you could end up with words you can't even read because it's all kind of bleeding and layered and all of this. And that's a really hard style to, to pull off, but I, I don't know how long that's going to stick around. Um, this is a question for you, Brandon. Mm -hmm. um, with messaging apps uh, having been around for decades, what do you think is the core need that Slack... Um, kind of meets that wasn't fulfilled before? Yeah. Um, well, there's a lot to this, and there's hopefully going to be a lot more to it. Uh, but, you know, centralizing your communication in one place. Like, messaging apps, sure, have been around forever. We've used different variations of them for a very long time. Um, but Slack, the combination of centralizing the communication, um, being, like, an easy-to-search, like, uh, repository of all your team's information being very useful. But not only that, but it's it's containing all not only your messages, but messages from the tools that you use. And like the increasing amount of tools that you're able to use and that stream in those messages in either like ported places where you pop them into a channel or like into a channel. Like that sort of a availability instead of context switching between all these different apps you use, but having this funnel of, you know, very organized searchable information in one place is the start. You know, obviously there's more that we can do there and make workplaces a lot better and larger workplaces a lot you know more efficient and and productive but um, to me that's the difference um, it's everything you need and everything your team uses in one place I would actually add to that because I'm actually a big Slack fan um, because we actually use uh, other clients in addition to Slack, and I, I don't know what it is, if it's the typography or if it's the white space or the character, but there's always just something about Slack that like people react to, I notice. Yeah. yeah. There's that too. We need to have to talk about the lack of vacation respond afterwards, but um, we'll just keep <laughs> up with the questions. Yeah, one. Um, going back to feedback, um, how do you handle change aversion and mm. not going into depression and balancing what users say they want versus what they actually need? Yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, there's always going to be change aversion to anything you do, especially when you have like a, an ever-growing user base. Um, there's definitely room to be really courageous and, and stick through it, and you know there's there's room to like push and and push to keep things that really do have value. I think one of the things that designers will constantly and likely struggle with forever is that, um, and I hate keep continuing to bring up biasing, but like that something to us seems so obviously better in one case, but it does not test well. Users don't like it, complain about it, find that they're less productive, like the move my cheese thing. Mm. Um, I think it's getting over that, and it's not like it's not like you can't have a moment of sadness. But I think it's it's pretty easy through user testing or through um, trying to have like as open of a lens as possible to step back and realize like where that might be coming from or where that concern might be. Um, it's a lot easier when you're being a little more incremental with your work. Of course, like 
no matter what you do, if you do a full-fledged redesign, like you're kind of hooped, you're going to get a lot of complaints. Or if you're Facebook and you change your timeline about that much, uh, there's going to be people creating a group that is one million likes to have Facebook roll back this change. <laughs> um, they don't really ever change it back, luckily. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. That's not really an answer um, except for, you know, try and be as empathetic as possible to the people that are actually having trouble using that software. I'll throw in one additional uh, footnote on that one is that one thing that we notice is that a lot of times people are complaining about a particular feature or something that they think could be improved. And sometimes that ends up as a bug on the engineering team. And the engineering team is, is tasked with resolving it. Where actually if the design team looks at it, we tend to pick stuff apart and we try to think about what the real problem is that someone is experiencing. What is the true thing that they're trying to do? It's probably not the thing they're actually describing. It's probably something much bigger. Yeah, that's true. Okay, I think we'll do three more questions. And uh, yeah, I know it'll be like that, but we'll, so, someone <laughs> will we'll make that choice and then we'll stay up here. So these three white males will stay on stage. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and you're more than welcome to do bilateral negotiations with them afterwards. <laughs> so um, let's do the next three questions. Um, okay, let me be the judge. Oh, you have one already? I'm not the judge. This is, this is for Todd. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking, did you ever receive any negative feedback or criticism on your tone, like the humorous tone of, or from the users of MailChimp? Not so much negative. It's more just kind of, I think, confused sometimes. People don't... I, th I think people come and they're, they're just like, I'm just trying to send a newsletter. Like, I'm just trying to do business. And what is all this crap? Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah, so for some people, it's just kind of an annoyance, I think. I think we hear that sometimes of like... Like, like yesterday when I was talking about how we put the butt on the login page, and people were kind of like, you know, WTF, like, what is this, you know? <laughs> so it's a fine line, yeah. It's, it's not so much outrage or anything like that, but, yeah, more annoyance, I would say. Um, you? More white males. <laughs> so what are the hardest thing of managing and creating designer design teams, so basically? <laughs> what, what is the hardest thing about growing a team and those types of things? So yeah, like other teams want, want their own parts, engineers want their own parts, so how do you... Uh. Like internally and externally in, 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 in a, inside of the company, so basically. Yeah. <sighs> There's a lot of ways we could go with this, but I mean, I feel like at least from our perspective, something that we have learned and something that we have really experimented with is what is the role of design at MailChimp, just in general? You know, are we a department? Are we like an agency within a big company? Are we distributed and embedded within engineering teams? Um, what is that relationship like? I think one of the, just to give an example, one of the things that we learned as a team uh, and something that I've been trying to teach people is that Oftentimes we'll have meetings where we're like looking at some new feature that we're thinking about doing, something that research exposed. And of course the designers on my team like want to make like the most polished looking thing and they like make something that looks awesome, you know? And we come in the room and it's like going to a funeral, like with engineers and engineers look at it and they're kind of like, well, obviously you have all the ideas, so, you know, why don't you take the lead for, you know, and they feel excluded because it's so pixel perfect and so tight mm -hmm. that they don't feel like they can contribute to the process at all. They feel like we've already sorted out all the problems. So 
it's a weird thing for me to instruct, but I've actually been asking designers on the team, like, put down Sketch, put down Photoshop, don't even open these tools. I want you to draw this thing. And we're going to go into this meeting with a drawing. It's going to look like crap. I don't care, like, what your skills are like. But the sheer fact that it's a drawing just opens the door, and people automatically feel involved at that point. An engineer or a CEO or anyone else looks at it, and they say, oh, it's obviously unfinished. Like, I can contribute to this, and I feel like they will find some value in what I have to say. Whereas, otherwise, it feels too siloed. Um, It's a very... It was an interesting thing that we detected. So... I think to answer your question, that is the skill I'm trying to teach is not just how to be pixel perfect, but when to be pixel perfect. Mm -hmm. And that's usually towards the end of a development cycle. Early, messy as hell. Like, I love it when it's messy. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I can echo that, too. And I think that, um, you know, the way the way that we work, and I'll talk a little bit about this later at 4 o'clock. Um, <laughs> so come on out. Um, it all. Yeah. Come on down. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we embed designers very closely with product managers and engineers. Everybody is a part of, like, a team, a smaller team. Um, and just the fact, the nature that we use Slack for everything when we start a feature, you're in a channel with the people that are going to be working on it. It's not necessarily at a very high fidelity state. In fact, it could be a problem statement, and those people will be like, you know, tossing around ideas, having like healthy arguments in that room, and getting to a point where we all feel like we understand the problem and we're ready to start executing. I'm lucky enough to have like, you know, I I don't do much management anymore, um, but uh, the team was really wonderful with that. We have such a naturally collaborative design team that that was a welcome change. We used to operate very much like a silo in the middle and when a project came in, we're like, uh, you and you. So, but <laughs> yeah. it's just like, you know, with scale, it becomes impossible, um, yeah. I think. Uh, and it silos designers a little bit too much and they, it does get to that point where you get too high fidelity too early and yeah. then, you know, you're kind of stuck and you get too attached at that point and don't want to reverse. I actually kind of hate the whole idea of like a designer being someone who just works in sketch and yeah. visuals and things. I see front-end engineers as very much being designers as well. Yeah. I mean, especially once you have a, a defined pattern library, you've got all the bricks, you know how to put something together. Front-end engineers can code in browser and be just as creative, if not more creative and a better designer than um, than a true, someone who has designer in their job title. Yeah. So, one last question. I expected the last one to be informal, have a certain tone of voice, uh, <laughs> <laughs> an attitude, and a feeling, please. Hi, this is to all three of you. If you could name or describe one emoji you feel that is missing in the Emojipedia right now, what would that be? And of course, you know one all 1,800 of them, right? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Good. Right here. After you guys, I'd love to. I'd love to hear. God, I don't know. Do you have artichoke lamps in there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, very beautiful. Yeah. There was a certain food that I remember that I was so shocked was not in the emoji library, and I really can't remember what it was. Get a bit of feedback sometimes that the food and drink icon on iOS has a, a soda bottle on there, but there isn't one. Uh, I'm not a big soda drinker, but a lot of people are annoyed that that's on the icon for the food and drink, but it's not actually in there. That's a hard question. That might have been the hardest one. For me, uh, can I? I'll give if, if you guys you want some time to think. Yeah, yeah. Um, one uh, one that's been approved, but it's not on iOS yet. That I'm very much looking forward to. The fingers crossed, because how often are you you know 
Fingers crossed. Good luck. Oh. Um, yes. That was so that's, that's already been approved, but it's not on my phone yet. Uh, as for one that I would particularly like, uh, someone in the room just mentioned this just before, and it's been something that's annoyed me for quite a long time, is how badly done the hug is that it looks like jazz hands and again sympathy it'd be great to have a real hug msn used to have a great hug where it was there were two of them one face this way and one face that way so you could send a hug to someone and then they could send you the opposite hug back it was it was great i, I would love that if that was a possibility oh it was fingers crossed we have oh. it we have it in our internal slack team yeah. like we have a Fingers crossed Bad emojis, yeah, yeah. and I just use it all the time. And then when I try and use it on my phone, it's not there. I'm like, what? What's this year's list added a lot that I'm going to use. Face palm, shrug. Very good. Uh, yeah. yeah. On the way. And you're not going to come up with an answer, am I, am I right? For some reason, my brain just went to the sarcasm HTML tag. Like, I'm still <laughs> waiting for that tag. I've been wanting one for so long. Um, so that's my answer. <laughs> hey, thanks a lot. Thanks for being here. Give him my hand. Thanks. Thank you very much, Nikolai, for running this. Uh, this is uh, the break time, but those of you who want to stay, I've, uh, I've uh, allowed you to, to stay here and come up to Jeremy, Brandon, and uh, Todd. Mm-hmm. If you have some one-on-one questions or you want a job or whatever. Uh, <laughs> the rest of you, please go have coffee and cake, and don't forget to vote in the emoji thing contest we have and there is actually oh, a prize much. and it's not a bad prize there. there jeremy has selected oh, 10 emojis i've seen them yeah i don't know so you have to go on twitter and type in hashtag design matters and then thank you should find the rules thank you
Hello, welcome back. How are you guys? Still hanging in there? Yeah? Ready for the last two sessions? Good. Let's get started. Our next speaker believes that good design enables people to get things done. And it's an obtrusive to get those things done. Sorry. <laughs> Actually, he's taking a break from his career. We've been so lucky that he decided to switch out Italian pizza and Barolo to come here and tell us about his former job as the Vice President of User Experience and Design at MTV. At MTV, he was delivering enjoyable experiences into the hands of people. But to do so, he needed to travel upstream and spend some time exploring the organization, its people and their culture, as it's a key ingredient in the recipe of great products. Today, we'll discuss the challenges, failures and successes when rebooting a 20-year-old interactive design culture. Please give a big welcome to Ryan Schaefer. Sorry. I feel like Price is right. Okay. Thanks. Well, hello, Design Matters. Uh, and thank you for that lovely, lovely intro. Um, so what I'd like to talk to you about today is evolving design, or as I like to call it, how I learned to stop worrying and embrace making sausage. Um, I have to uh, be honest with you guys, I'm getting over a cold, so I'll probably cough a little bit, but I'll drink a lot of water. So, let's dive in. So I would like to start by taking a survey, by round of applause, clap if you've ever participated in the UX design versus product design versus any other labeled debate. Okay? Let's start clapping. Okay, so it looks like a lot of us has done that. I've done it many times, too many times, because I believe that my time can be better spent doing something else. Now, I can hear probably some of you thinking right now, but Ryan, isn't our label important to us as designers and to our peers? Well, to answer that, I turn to a wise sage for answers. It's not who I am underneath what I do that defines me. God, Batman is so smart. It's what we do that defines us. So let's talk about that for a second. Now, during my time improving design at MTV, I witnessed a gap. A gap in understanding between what we do and what the others in the organization think we do. And I think fixing this is a better use of my time. And I hope you guys agree. Now, fellow designers, we must not allow an understanding gap. Sorry, I had to figure out how to incorporate Dr. Strange stuff somehow. <clears throat> so we all seek to have design be better valued, better respected in our organization. But what I believe is that this gap holds us back. Now, before I dig into how I narrow this gap, I'm required by international design law to include one quote from Steve Jobs or Apple. So I'm going to get mine out of the way up front. Good artists copy, great artists steal. Steve Jobs believed in this quote. How do I know? He stole it. 
He stole it from Pablo Picasso. But it didn't belong to Pablo either. He got it from William Faulkner, who took it from T.S. Eliot, who stole it from W.H. Davenport Adams. So my point is, if these guys can steal a quote about the greatness of stealing ideas, follow their lead. Steal from other coworkers' experiences. Steal from articles that you read. And definitely steal from this presentation and adapt any of this to your own needs. So, back to figuring out how to narrow this gap. Now, a lot of people talk about culture change. But there's something that's always sort of bothered me about it. Like, they always expect someone to just jump right in and start making changes really quickly. But we all know that making massive changes quickly, it's a great way to create resistance. I also think there's a problem with the word change. It lacks any sort of specifics. How? How fast? But if I say the word evolve, we not only understand how change occurs bit by bit, but we also get some sort of sense of time scale, change over the longer term. That's why I like evolve better than change. It's clearer. Now, I'll be honest, just because I'm saying evolve instead of change, it doesn't make anything any easier. There's bound to be bumps along this way, and we've got to figure out how to get through them. Now, I learned this trick when I was a little kid, and I think it helps me get through the bumps in the way. And I still use it today. Growing up in Vermont, I wanted to learn how to snowboard. So I got my board, I went to the mountain, and I fell down this part of the mountain all day long. Now, my older brother who had learned the year before me, he saw my falls, and he offered to help. He offered to teach me the way he was taught. You go to the top of the mountain for a longer run for more practice. So I jumped at it. Now, on the ride up, I was so happy that my big brother was taking time for his baby brother. We got to the top, we strapped in, and that's when my big brother said these words to me. Time to learn how I was taught. I'll see you at the bottom. Good luck. (laughs) And he left me. I mean, do you believe it? Now, I could tell you this amazing story about me facing these immense challenges and rising above it. But no, I didn't learn how to snowboard that day, but I did learn from it. I learned that trust is easy to lose. But I also learned that my uneasiness made me tense up. And when I hit an unforeseen bump, I fell every time. But when I got more comfortable, I relaxed and I stopped falling. My body was able to absorb the bumps. So that's my trick. Stay flexible and adapt to the bumps to carry on. This is what helped me stick with it, to manage the long journey that an evolution takes. Now, there's one other thing that helped me along this journey. I remember that I was a designer. And that this was nothing more than a design challenge. We've all seen a slide like this before, right? Now, once you see it through this lens, it all becomes familiar. It becomes less daunting. The environment and the output, you know, maybe a little bit less familiar, but lean on your skills as a designer and you'll work through that unfamiliar. Start by understanding the context to why things aren't working and go from there.
Now, my journey began by interviewing peers and teammates. I observed methodologies, processes, communication, and so on. But I made a mistake. I didn't make it clear to my boss and to the others what exactly what I was doing. My boss was expecting culture change. So she started getting worried that I wasn't jumping and just solving all the problems really quickly. I had to remember that she and my other peers, they didn't have a really good understanding of design methodology. So, make your approach clear to all involved. Open your door to anybody who has concerns. It's a great learning opportunity to teach some fundamentals about how design works. Now, what I learned was that there was a top-down culture copied from the executive producer mindset of television that led to long waterfall projects that ran through silo departments that, you know, excuse me, that, you know, rarely led to collaboration. All of this was negatively affecting the health of my team and most other teams as well. So realizing that my team was sick, I need to understand it better. So, I ran a session with my team, and I asked them to bring examples of uh, tasks that they commonly did. Now, everyone took these tasks, and they wrote them on stickies, and, you know, they put them up on the wall with little to no order. We reviewed them, and we added missing tasks, and then we, you know, removed some when we thought they were duplicates. Silently, we then organized them into a single line with simple tasks on one side and complex tasks on the other. Now, once an agreement... I gave everyone two-dot stickers, and I asked them to choose two tasks that they hated to do the most. We tallied the votes and then discussed what was the most frustrating and why. Collectively, we were deciding on what was a priority. Now, it would have been so much easier if I just did that on my own. But I'm not alone in the organization. There's others to consider, and excluding them in this approach to making change is another great way to create resistance. So now, let's talk about resistance. This is a sample taken from an organ transplant. In it, it depicts the body rejecting foreign cells, specifically the donated organ. That's our immune system's job. Attack what isn't normal. To manage this, doctors give patients immunosuppressants, drugs that relax the immune system just enough to allow the organ to take hold. Collaborative exercises like the ones that I ran with my team can be the designer's immunosuppressants in adopting change. Now, Erica Hall from Mule Design explains my point quite elegantly. Only after you have won someone's trust and demonstrated empathy do you have a hope of conveying that your position is in their best interests. So I felt my team's frustrations. I could see where it impacted their day-to-day and how they were collectively feeling. And they could see me get it too. This is empathy at work, building up trust. Efforts like this lowered their natural defense against change, allowing them to be open to any that I might suggest. Now, you can run any number of these type of exercises with your peers to relax their fear of change as well, all while creating a shared understanding of the overall problem. Both set you up to narrow this gap. So, okay, if exercises like these uh, 
demonstrate empathy, and build up trust, let's identify a couple that destroy it. Here's a few examples that I've witnessed. Not having a voice, be it in product or process, is a surefire way to feel alone at a big company. Now, usually connected to the lack of voice is a misunderstanding of your role and its responsibility. The highest paid person in the room making all the decisions, the executive model. This usually undermines both voice and respect for everyone else in the room. The fallacy of efficiency. Siloed waterfall work whose byproduct is usually warring tribes. Now, executives are typically standing so far back from this field of battle, they don't understand why their output is so bad. Now, questions like, why am I doing this? Why did they make this decision? A lack of transparency and clarity is an effective means to undermine trust. But there's one, one that bothers me the most. Treating your teammates like children. Meet Krista. She was a designer on my team, and in the time that I worked with her, she got married, bought a house, started a family, got promoted. She did all of this, planning a wedding, negotiating a mortgage, choosing to be responsible for another human being, all while succeeding at her job. Being fearful about her ability to do her job says more about me than it does about her. Showing trust goes a long way to establishing trust. Now, in the design profession, I fear that we see this problem so frequently, I'm not sure if we recognize it anymore. Here are some examples. The design leader who presents their work instead of the designer who did the work. Now, leaders who do this rob the designer of a much-needed experience, selling an idea. And the design leader who is missing the role of the design leader, adding clarity when needed, or supporting the designer should the meeting go awry. You know, building trust. Here's another. These images are from a Tumblr called Hovering Art Director. (laughs) It's so common, designers are joking about it. This this is my team joking about it. Now, and the, I think this to be the design version of the uh, executive swoop and poop. I don't like it. And I believe we need to think about how these type of interactions impact our designers. Now, to be clear, I don't think every interaction like this is bad. So to help everyone, I made this handy chart. Now, if you find it useful, you know, you can take a photo now or find me on Twitter for a PDF. But... I encourage designers to use this to make helpful suggestions or design leaders as a reminder. If you see a missing scenario, talk to me afterwards. Now, remember, the people on your team are adults, living adult lives. The more you treat them like children, the more they're going to act like it. So if you're seeing childish behavior on your team, maybe step back and analyze your own actions as a leader first. Now, This is one of my most favorite quotes on leadership. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men and the women to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. But how do you teach something like yearning for the endless sea? This is Seymour Papert. He was a researcher and professor at MIT Media Lab whose focus was on learning theory. 
Now, among his many accomplishments, he partnered with Lego to produce Lego Mindstorms, a kit of Legos and software that enable kids to make programmatic robots. So fucking awesome. Here's how he described the role of the teacher. Okay, I'm just kidding. I mean, he did say this, but I'm just checking to see if you're paying attention. (coughs) The role of the teacher is to create the conditions of invention rather than provide ready-made instruction. Now, if we change teacher to leader, I think it still works. And I believe it to be a critical idea that can strengthen design within an organization. Because without the proper conditions, design can struggle to function. I actually just spent the last few minutes talking about one condition of invention. Strong empathy and trust, which helps us yearn for something better by embracing change. Now, we in design need to consider what other conditions that we need to pay attention to at our workplace. Here's a couple more that I think about. Fail often. We see this commonly embraced by startups, and they do so because they want to enable their team to ditch any fears of trying new ideas. But I have a problem with it. The goal isn't to fail. The goal is to learn. Now, we could just change fail to learn, but I think the most powerful lessons are those learned from failure. So I think it's better to have both. That's why I prefer this Japanese proverb, stumble seven times, recover eight. Embracing failure and learning through recovery is a more powerful condition than just embracing failure alone. This idea can help create a culture of learning within your team. Now, here's another one that I touched on earlier. Evolution is a series of small progressive changes within an environment over a period of time. Small progressive changes. It's a simple but powerful idea. You don't have to look any further than Mother Nature to be amazed by this condition of invention. A small change can have a big impact. So look around for any small day-to-day changes that you can make. Another condition is where to make the change. Now, I recommend to start something somewhere where you have more influence and least potential for damage and then work outwards. Because remember, trust is hard to earn back. So let me give you some real-life examples of this. So in talking with my designers, I heard frequently that they all felt that the other designers were getting all the cool work. This wasn't true. But it was an issue of transparency, really. But since it was affecting the trust on my team, I needed to address it. Now, my first thought was to do a stand-up, you know, not unlike this. Let's show what everyone was actually working on every day. So we booked a room, sent out invites, and we tried it. And we failed. So we stumbled, but, you know, on to recovery. Let's understand why. The room was too large. It had this gigantic conference room table in it. So everyone just sort of spread out, sat down, opened up their notebooks, and started doodling, and just didn't pay attention to what anyone else was saying. And I think the format didn't help either. It was just talking. There wasn't any visual feedback to facilitate a conversation amongst designers. So my next uh, next attempt, I made the following changes. We ditched this room and the gigantic conference table. And instead, we did it in a hallway. Now, a team room might have been more ideal, but we didn't have it. Uh, But the new space did two things. It meant no sitting, and it was really public, so people just really wanted to get 
the moving going quickly. Now, the wall in the hallway had whiteboard paint. So each designer had a box and with their name in it. And at the beginning of each meeting, each designers would write what they're actively working on and then what was in their queue. This flurry of activity added energy to what once was a really boring meeting. The board became a visual object for you know everyone to reference when it was their turn to talk. It kept everyone's focus tuned. Now, those who missed the meeting, well, they could just look at the board whenever they had a chance. And this public board had some unintended effects, transparency with other teams. We would hear things like, oh, I had this thing that I need to ask you to do, but wow, I can see you guys are super busy. I'll come back later. Now, the coolest thing was when I stepped back and let other members of the team run the meeting. The team made their own changes, like color coding to indicate who was busy and who was free, or what was an active task. They added vacation dates so they can help reassign work. These are conditions of invention taking shape. Small progressive changes in my team's day-to-day trying to solve problems, and then improved under their own inventions with new solutions. Now, the hard part is doing this outside of your own area of influence. So for that, I would test the conditions before I tried to advocate a change. Think about a canary in a coal mine. It tests the air for all to see. This isn't that much different. You're testing your company's conditions to see what's possible. So let me share an example. The day after Adam Yonk of the Beastie Boys died, my mom called me at work. Now, Growing up, I listened to the Beastie Boys, but there really was only one album that my mom enjoyed. She'd called me to let me know that she was on Google News and she was browsing and she unknowingly clicked on MTV's news article to read about his passing. My mom's call made me wonder how much of our traffic is coming from people outside of MTV's demo. And was search really the best strategy to reach our audience? Now, Normally, it's research that raises these questions, but this time, it started with her. I shared this with my boss, and while she was interested, we just had other priorities to focus on. So, I decided to use my own people to try to create a canary for everyone else to see. This is Michaela Maroney. She's an American gymnast who competed at the 2012 Olympic Games in London. Now, during these games, she barely missed gold in the vault. At the award ceremony, in a moment of disappointment, she made this face. (laughs) Meet Gavin, another designer from my team. He saw her expression and its irony, an Olympian not impressed with being second best in the world. So he photoshopped her into impressive cultural moments and then posted it on Tumblr. He called it, Michaela's not impressed. And it blew up. It blew up on the internet. Now, if you don't recognize these, let me give you a sense of scale about how big it got. Do you recognize him? (laughs) Now, Gavin might have done this on his own. I don't really know. But after that meeting with my boss, I encouraged my designers to use any of their downtime to create content that they themselves would like and share and to let me know if anything popped. 
Now, Michaela was one, but there were others, like slubs with no eyebrows. Or histograms, history captured through Instagram. Now, things like this boosted their creative freedom while allowing me to test an idea and gauge the reaction of the company. And that reaction? Amazement. That quickly turned to questions about, why aren't we doing this on MTV? Now, this is the canary in the coal mine, testing for a condition of invention. Change didn't happen overnight. It rarely does. But it started a conversation. It helped create something beyond my area of influence. And after a year's time of exploring and developing this previously impossible direction, we had almost tripled MTV's traffic. But why did I have to do this? Why did my boss just, you know, listen to me? Here's why. Sell me this pen. It's, it's a amazing pen a, for professionals. A, Sell me this pen. It's a nice pen. You can use the pen to write down thoughts from your life so you can remember. These poor guys. <clears throat> like these guys trying, failing to try and sell the pen, I didn't effectively sell the value of it to my boss. I mean, clearly there was value. I just needed a way to tell people so that they would pay attention and understand. Efforts like Michaela's Not Impressed told that story. So remember... If done properly, storytelling can be a designer's best friend in creating clarity. Now, the art of telling a good story isn't the only way to create clarity. I think it's something larger that we designers need to focus on, and that's language. Now, to help explain what I mean, let me start by telling you a story. This is the Tower of Babel. Now, for those of you who don't know this story, let me set it up for you. The story takes place right after the great flood with Noah's Ark, where he saved two of every animal and his family. Noah was asked by God to do two things. One, have many children, and to fill all the earth with them. Now, they did the first part, but not so much the second part. They built a city where everyone had the same language. God saw this and chose to mix up everybody's language and then scatter them across the earth. This is the Bible's explanation for the origin of the diversity of language. But there's another meaning. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. This underscores the power of a common language among people. Language is vital to how a team works together. But when it comes to the language of design... I think we need to take a more active role in defining it and teaching it to our peers for the sake of clarity. Now, here are five things to consider when establishing your design language. Now, before you start, recognize that the language of design might sound like Klingon to your coworkers. You and your team will have to act as translators until everyone's up to speed. Be consistent, be patient, and above all, be honest. Don't use their lack of language against them. Now, do you know that in the United States, there's not one, but there's three names for this fizzy beverage? Soda, 
pop and coke, but not the brand coke. Each use exists in regional pockets across the United States. Now, why is Florida more of a soda state than the rest of the South? Over two-thirds of Florida's population comes from another state, and the majority comes from the Northeast, a heavily soda area. What I want you to take away from this is language is rooted in culture. The words you choose should meet the, com- your, the needs of your company's culture first. By all means, please start with an industry standard, but don't get hung up on it. For example, if your company's culture is rooted in industrial design, using the word product design instead of UX design or any of the other labels, it might add confusion. The goal is to add clarity, not be dogmatic. Not all language is verbal. So don't forget about the other way that a team communicates. How can you add clarity there? For example, a style guide helps designers talk with other designers. A pattern library can help designers talk with product and content managers. And if you document both in code, well, then everyone will be able to talk with the developers. And while you're at it, you know, add a design language dictionary. Okay, so we've all received really vague meeting invites like this, and they're usually the beginning of a really crappy, confusing meeting. Now, clarifying something like this can manage the expectations of those who participate with the design team. So identify patterns of confusion and provide definitions to add clarity. Now, beyond types of meetings, I can think of things like titles and responsibilities, methodologies, phases in the process, and so on. Openness and consistency are all key to reducing any confusion. Now, as I said, I've lived the last year of my life in Italy, and I moved there without knowing any Italian. So I can tell you that immersion is one of the fastest ways to learn a language. Any design-centered meeting is an opportunity to immerse peers and practice the language. In these teaching moments, be kind by correcting misuses of the language, because I can tell you I've learned so much more Italian from the friend that corrects my mistakes than the ones that ignore it. So like these people who built their great tower, a common language can help unite everyone to accomplish things never imagined possible. A common language can add clarity and it can narrow this gap. So by now, you can probably tell how much I hate this gap. It creates so much confusion. It harms the people within our organization and limits what they're capable of doing. Yes, fixing these problems can be daunting. And yes, sometimes it can be about as enjoyable as watching sausage being made. And yeah, that's real. but we cannot allow this gap in understanding to exist where we work. This is the type of design that we designers say we enjoy, solving the hard problems. So I encourage all of you to rise up to this design challenge like you would to any other. Now, at the beginning of my talk, I asked you to steal. If any of you are trying to make these type of changes at your own workplace, I hope that you'll steal from my experiences because I care about design and those that practice it. So I'm going to make it super easy for you. Here's the too long, didn't read version of my presentation. One, stay flexible and design your way through. Two, build trust so that others may embrace change. Three, empower design with conditions of invention. And four, Create clarity 
with a design team lang- or team design language. I believe if we practice these four concepts where we work, we can narrow that gap of understanding and improve design for all involved. Thank you very much. We're running a little bit late. Um, but maybe Ryan Sorry. is here like five minutes after the last talk and you can go and ask him questions. So this is the last talk. <laughs> it's kind of sad <laughs> to be at the end. Well, 